and good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, anything can happen. And I've said it a million times, and I'll probably say it a million more. It used to be that those weird, unusual, unexpected, unprogrammed things kind of only happened at this time of night and later. Now, of course, it's 24-7. It's relentless. Uh, We're going through an extraordinary epoch in planetary history, in global history, in U.S. history. I mean, I don't, uh, every day I see commentators saying, well, this is unprecedented, or this has never happened before, or can you believe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So tonight we're going to be looking into the future. And I would have said a few years ago into the more distant future, but things are happening at such an accelerated rate that uh, a major milestone in the future we're going to talk about tonight is probably, and we'll explain what the probably means uh, shortly, uh, will take place in the next few months. In fact, there are going to be two events that will take place in the next few months, which will have a major role in determining the future, not just of this uh, nation, but of the world. And we will explain what we mean by that in detail very shortly. Before we uh, get to our guest this morning, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to uh, Doug, because he's been following the details of all the stuff that I have not had time to follow, given all the other stuff which is going on. Um, Let me move a few news items here at the top. Um, I presume, I hope, I wish that you all were following the developments uh, off North Africa in the Canary Islands to a little island called La Palma. Uh, La Palma is erupting. La Palma is an island volcano located, as I said, just off the northwest coast of Africa. And for the last week, it began erupting last Sunday. So it's six days going on maybe seven depending upon the time zones over there, um, La Palma began erupting again. Now, this is a sporadic um, active volcano. The last set of eruptions were something like 30 years ago. And uh, the reason that we're monitoring this quite closely is because, A, the eruptions are becoming really rather dramatic. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our, our webpage, that's our homepage, and click on tonight's banner, um, which says rather dramatically, Musk's grand plan to save humanity by inheriting the solar system. And our, our guest there, Dr. Douglas Plata, click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, you'll see fast links. Click on my name, Richard. That will take you to the items for tonight. And item number one is an update website, which has been set up to give us real-time data on La Palma, including new images, new video, uh, how many thousands of homes have been destroyed by this uh, eruptive lava. A new vent apparently opened this afternoon. And there's also a seismic plot. Now, the thing you want to focus on is the seismic plot because um, 20-plus years ago, there were a couple of geologists who wrote a paper I believe they were based out of Britain. I'm not sure. Memory uh, does not always serve. But they they 
made a very startling proposal, which is that if a big enough eruption or a big enough earthquake occurred to La Palma, about half of the island would slide into the Atlantic Ocean, something like 500 billion tons of uh, basalt. And what that would do, again, according to their calculations, is create a mega tsunami. In fact, age of the uh, uh, eruption slash, you know, sliding uh, motion of a lot of the mass of the island, the mass would be accelerating toward the Atlantic at about 200 miles an hour. Now, it doesn't take a genius to uh, realize that that amount of material hitting the Atlantic Ocean at that velocity is going to create a wave, a very, very big wave. Some calculations indicate that the splash could be 3,000 feet high. In other words, the wave, the tsunami, would start from this catastrophe over half a mile in the sky, racing in all directions outward from La Palma um, across the Atlantic Ocean and northward and southward. And it would put in jeopardy everyone living along the, the coast of the North Atlantic, including Europe, uh, Scandinavian countries, uh, Greenland, Iceland, uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Boston, everything up and down the east coast of the United States, into the Caribbean, around into the Gulf of Mexico, um, the um, shoreline of, of the Gulf. In other words, water goes wherever it wants to go, and this would be such an enormous energy application uh, to the wave functions of the Atlantic that there would be little in the Western Hemisphere that would not be touched by this extraordinary event. That's the bad news. The good news is the probability of this happening is very, very low. However, as we've been looking at La Palma in the last week since the eruptions began, um, it has had stops and starts, lulls, periods of intensive activity. Now, as of this afternoon, there are reports, and again, click on that link, um, that it's uh, shattering windows two miles away from the volcano on the slopes where they built an awful lot of houses. Why do people do that? Because they are told the volcano is extinct. Yeah, right. Anyway, it's, uh, it's apparently uh, destroyed something like 400 homes and other dwellings. It's uh, uh, made about 7,000 people uh, the, the need to evacuate. All flights in and out of La Palma have now been stopped. I'm not sure about ocean travel yet. There is thick ash. There are clouds of, um, um, you know, noxious gases like hydrogen sulfide that these volcanoes emit. Um, and there are these explosions because it's a pyroclastic volcano, meaning that it's not the, the lava is not running like water. It's much thicker and it clogs and then there are explosive gas discharges and that's what causes the shock waves. In other words, La Palma tonight is a place you need to watch. So for everyone living along the coasts of the Atlantic Ocean, and I'm talking South America, the Caribbean, North America, uh, Canada, and Europe, all of Europe, including Spain, including France, including England, 
you want to uh, set your smartphone so there are alerts, live real-time alerts from seismic activity at La Palma. And if there is a major quake, like a six or a seven, or God help us, an eight, um, part of that island could dislodge. There is a visible uh, fault. You can actually walk through it, which was created by an earthquake, I believe, back in uh, 1949. I mean, just like yesterday in terms of geology. Again, this is all a low probability scenario. There's no need to panic. If you set your 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 um, alerts on your phone properly to the USGS or to the European equivalent, and it gives you an alert when there's a major earthquake, and you can set the magnitude, you know, so you can kind of watch this, you know, if you're very very paranoid. Um, you'll have if there's a big one and the island lets go, you'll have between six and nine hours. I've been telling folks six, it turns out that the wave will be a little longer in getting to the East Coast. It'll be much shorter for Europe, so you want to adjust your uh, positions accordingly. But you want to have a bag packed. You want to have your computer stuff on a, you know, a, a thumb drive. You want to be ready because this is not a zero probability. It's low, but it's not zero. Now, if you look at item number two, um, these are a series of images taken from the International Space Station and from some of the um, uh, weather satellites. Gorgeous. It's amazing. It's, it certainly you know, lays out the uh, uh, things that Mother Nature can do on planet Earth when it you know, has a mind to. But keep in mind that uh, the real problems are for folks on the ground. Uh, I would not want to be a resident of La Palma tonight. Uh, again, all those houses built on the slopes because, you know, it's like over here. When uh, when we have hurricanes, you know, you'll see people busily rebuilding houses that are destroyed in the same place, right along the same shore. And uh, that's not a good idea. Anyway, the reason that this is interesting, and we're going to go into this much more tomorrow night when uh, we have members of the Enterprise Imaging Team and we talk about the Mars and moon excursions of uh, Elon Musk's vision. Um, something very curious happened on Mars, literally at about the time that La Palma began to erupt. A few hours before, literally a few hours <clears throat> before the La Palma eruption, the NASA InSight spacecraft, which as you know, uh, like a thousand days ago, give or take, uh, landed in the northern hemisphere of Mars. It's called InSight because it carried for the first time since Viking a seismometer, which is a gadget designed to detect Earth's movement, to detect earthquakes, i.e. on Mars, uh, Mars quakes. And they detected on the 18th of September, literally a few hours before La Palma, the largest earthquake that InSight has recorded on Mars since it landed. And that's in that thousand day window. Back in 2019, uh, it detected on the Richter scale of 3.7. Well, the ones that it detected, there were, there were uh, three of them. Uh, a couple of them on the 25th of August and one on the 18th of September. And they were much stronger than the one back in 2019. Mars is very, very earthquake silent. 
it's really, really calm. And the uh, instrument, which is incredibly sensitive, um, has to uh, reach down into the noise to even detect much of a signal because Mars is geologically very, 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 very quiet. There's no internal energy, which makes what I'm going to say next all the more amazing. And we'll go into the details tomorrow night. No preview. Um, spoiler alert. Um, the earthquake that InSight detected and radioed back to Earth at the speed of light on the 18th, a few hours before La Palma let go, <clears throat> lasted for 90 minutes. Let me repeat that. The largest earthquake currently detected on Mars by the NASA InSight mission a week ago on the 18th, which is literally a week ago uh, before tonight, <clears throat> was A, the largest they've detected, and it went on for 90 minutes. What? I mean, there's no such thing as a 90-minute earthquake on Earth. Like I just said, Mars is very, very quake quiet. There's not much energy running around inside the planet. It died a long time ago, geologists tell us, planetologists. So where did the energy come from to produce a 90-minute earthquake on a silent planet? We will get into this in detail tomorrow night. Item number four. Uh, one of the reasons that we're going to be doing a three-hour discussion tonight of Elon Musk and all of his visions and plans and practicalities and successes and triumphs and constant changes is because it's in space that the answer to a number of these terrestrial planetary scale problems, um, in fact, uh, await. There are all kinds of things we can do for the planet from space that you cannot do from Earth. And we'll get into some of those this morning as our conversation proceeds. And one of the things that um, Musk's company has done is to foster such a dramatic decrease in the price of getting into space, of getting into uh, low Earth orbit and returning safely with his reusable rocket technology, et cetera, et cetera, that about two weeks ago, on Wednesday, uh, which was what, the um, 18th, 17th, 15th, on the 15th, um, a group of four civilians, uh, which were organized and paid for by a, another billionaire, uh, Musk is one, of course, and this guy whose name is uh, uh, Gerald Isaacman, he took a group of people, four, I'm sorry, three other civilians into space for three days. And just so I don't mess up their names, let me tell you who they were. <clears throat> they were Isaacman, who financed the mission in a contract with, of course, uh, Musk and SpaceX. There was um, a young lady named Hallie Arsenault, 29. She was a she's a childhood cancer survivor. Um, and a St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital physician assistant. And the whole focus of the mission was as a fundraiser to raise money for St. Jude's. And they raised something like $160 million as of uh, last week. 
of a $200 million goal set by Isaacman. And after they um, had raised about 160 mil, Musk uh, tweeted that he would uh, put in about 10, uh, I'm sorry, 50 million more, which put them about $10 million over their goal. And they have not uh, kind of, you know, ceased those fundraising activities. So who knows by the end of their campaign, how much they could have um, raised. And that will be part of our discussion tonight with uh, Dr. Plata, because I have some, I, I think, you know, relevant questions about the, the mission, which, again, in context, make, will make a great deal of sense. And without the context, will not make any sense at all. So I will defer that uh, conversation until um, uh, I have gone the air. Getting back to the list, item number five, um, you know that a few months ago, NASA uh, signed a contract, a $2.9 billion contract, with SpaceX to provide the lunar landing spacecraft for the Artemis uh, NASA program to return Americans to the moon. And as soon as uh, NASA had awarded the contract to Musk, um, Jeff Bezos, remember there's another billionaire in the uh, fun and games in outer space, well, Jeff Bezos uh, sued him, claiming that the NASA procurement procedures and contract over oversight, et cetera, et cetera, was somehow deficient, and he wanted a piece of the action. Well, if you look at item number five, uh, the, um, the government, the U.S. government, in the form of the uh, Government Accountability Office, ruled that the space agency's announcement that NASA awarded the uh, contract to SpaceX was without flaw. It, it um, uh, followed all the prerequisites of these contracting procedures. And um, so Bezos is kind of uh, left out in the cold. Now, of course, that didn't stop him because they immediately filed an appeal. And this has been delaying now the launch from Texas, Boca Chica. We're going to talk about what the heck is Boca Chica in a moment um, of his first effort to put the big Starship spacecraft that he has built as a successor to the uh, Falcon uh, launch vehicles, both the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy. Um, he's going to launch this spacecraft, which will ultimately, according to the NASA contract, be the missions or the missions, plural, which take um, uh, NASA astronauts to and from the surface of the moon, from the gateway in orbit around the moon, uh, that spacecraft will be lofted into Earth orbit sometime between now and the end of the year. Now, Musk was saying he wanted it to happen by July, but the Bezos litigation with his NASA contract, you know, between SpaceX and the Artemis program has slowed everything down. And a reporter, I think, asked him the other day if he was going to be able to make the 2024 uh, date for return to the moon set by uh, the Trump administration, and he said in his usual Musk way, uh, probably even before. So um, notwithstanding all these legal details, uh, we're going to talk about some of the uh, uh, details tonight in terms of the test of the upcoming um, spacecraft launched from Boca Chica, which takes us into item number six, because if you look there at that little graph, that is an artwork that was produced by the BBC 
which shows the relative scale size of several major um, rockets and spacecraft that have been part of the human exploration program. On the left, there's the shuttle. Then there's the uh, Falcon Heavy from Musk and SpaceX. Then there's the Space Launch System, which is NASA's big rocket, which is uh, in its initial Block 1 version. And then to the right of that, there's the uh, familiar Saturn V. I was so lucky I got to see several of those things launch. Believe me, unbelievable. And finally, on the far right of the graph, uh, there is uh, uh, Musk's Starship and the Falcon Super Heavy Booster, which is something like 395 feet tall when it's assembled, uh, sitting on its launch platform. And they assembled it you know, a few days ago, and they've now disassembled it to install more equipment. But if you click on that link, item number six, you will uh, be able to see some of the uh, images, some of the photographs from the stacking process. This is an amazing vehicle. And again, uh, we'll talk in some detail about uh, some aspects of this tonight, and then we'll pick up and extend the conversation uh, tomorrow night. Finally, <clears throat> item number seven. This one is just so cool. Captain Kirk, <clears throat> William Shatner, has signed an agreement with Jeff Bezos to go into space and come back in about 15 minutes. Remember, these are not orbital missions. These are suborbital, both Bezos' activities and Richard Branson's activities with the Virgin Galactic spacecraft. These are suborbital flights that kind of mimic what Alan Shepard did way back in 1961. Um, <clears throat> and passengers, of which there can be, I believe, in the Bezos spacecraft uh, six, and someone will correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, Captain Kirk, who is 90 years of age, this is giving everyone, including me, a lot of uh, confidence that we're going to get to do this our, ourselves someday. He will be 90, or he is 90 currently. He's going to go into space with uh, Jeff Bezos, and the flight is scheduled for sometime within the next month, sometime in October. Now, one of the questions I kind of had, kind of off the top of my mind, was given the fact that the news item says that the spaceflight mission for uh, Bill is comped, meaning someone else paid the bill, which is only appropriate given how much uh, uh, Will Shatner has delivered to uh, societies all around the world just by starring in Star Trek alone. I'm just kind of wondering, and I don't know whether we'll get an answer, but um, uh, I'll just kind of put it out there. Why is Shatner um, deciding to go on a suborbital 15-minute hop as opposed to being part of the next uh, four-astronaut civilian mission in the SpaceX Dragon spacecraft uh, into Earth orbit where he could spend several days getting used to zero gravity, seeing extraordinary views, sending tweets to all his fans all over the planet, doing live uh, whatever Bill might want to do with the Earth there as a backdrop. And I understand, and this is again uncertain, but I understand based on the latest reporting, but the next civilian mission from SpaceX will not 
uh, merely uh, orbit the Earth by its lonesome, but it will in fact dock with the International Space Station. And so the civilians, uh, like um, that uh, billionaire many years ago who was able to buy a berth on a Russian spacecraft and you know, kind of uh, rent out a room at the space station for several days, uh, several years ago. I'm trying to remember his name. Someone will send it to me in Skype, I'm sure. Anyway, um, if if he could do it back then, why couldn't Musk arrange for the, his tourists who are leasing his uh, rockets and spacecraft to visit and occupy a wing of the International Space Station? Apparently, that is in negotiation. I don't know the status, but the next civilian flight for the Dragon spacecraft um, will include, I believe, um, a visit to the International Space Station. So then back to the question, why is Bill electing, Bill Shatner electing to do a suborbital flight, which gives you maybe five minutes, four minutes of zero gravity, when just as easily and for the same amount of money, and the same kind of sponsorship, he could have a, an extended mission into space of several days. Inquiring minds want to know. So on that note, um, we've got about four minutes to the bottom of the hour. Uh, let me bring on my guest of the morning. Um, Dr. Douglas Plata is a physician and public health specialist in Loma Linda, California, his undergraduate degree was in biophysics. He went on to complete his MD and MPH with specialty training in family and preventive medicine. His primary interest in space is in the development of a cost-effective transportation system to the moon based upon lunar polar ice for propellant and the establishment of humanity's first permanent foothold off Earth. A description of this plan for sustainable Space development can be found at developspace.info. He has founded a new type of free-to-join space advocacy organization called the Space Development Network, which can also be found at developspace.info. And without further ado, Dr. Plata, welcome to the other side of midnight. Thank you, Richard. Good to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we've got about two or three minutes at the end. And obviously, the perfect way to begin is to ask, given the brevity of that bio, uh, how did a family physician, a doctor, an MD, get interested in outer space? And do you want to become the next uh, Bones McCoy at the moon base that we're going to discuss tonight? <laughs> that would be great. Um, so just, again, we have just a few minutes until the uh, bottom of the hour, but um, Basically, in 2000, well, okay, so... We have I, plenty of time. We don't have to truncate this. We can pick it up after the bottom of the hour. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. So uh, when I went through high school, you know, I just, when I took physics, I just, it just really clicked with me. I didn't realize that I had sort of a physics mind, but I, it was very clear that I did. So uh, I did biophysics uh, in, in college. Uh, but was but was pre-med and, and you know since third grade I wanted to be a physician so to me biophysics was a path towards that um, but when I got into medicine I didn't really use my physics as much as as I would have wished uh, and it wasn't until 2009 when NASA had uh, a, a very important mission called the L cross mission oh remember they, vividly vividly yes 
it was amazing because it was the time that water ice on the moon had been proven. And this is where they crashed a, a centaur upper stage into a permanently shadowed crater at the south pole of the moon and kicked up that dirt called the regolith up into the sunlight and was able to image and confirm that one part out of 18 was water ice. Uh, and, and about maybe a quarter or fifth of that was organics as well, including carbon and nitrogen. And so the moment I read that uh, news report, I was like, well, you could electrolyze the water into propellants, hydrogen and oxygen. Couldn't that be the basis for a trans- transportation system between the Earth and the moon? I tell you what, hold and it so there. I, hold it there with the okay. bottom of the hour. Cliffhanger, folks. You can electrolyze the water on the moon. We will describe exactly what electrolyzing water does when you return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland from the Land of Enchantment on this Saturday, September 25th, 2021. We shall return. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight from the Land of Enchantment on this Saturday evening. My guest this morning is Dr. Douglas Plata, 
who is a doctor. <clears throat> you know, I don't know whether they make house calls anymore, but he's a doctor doctor. He's an MD. But he also has this very interesting interest in what goes on upstairs in outer space, which began apparently in 2009. And Doug, you were about to tell us that NASA's Lacrosse mission, which was the first unmanned mission to survey the South Pole of the Moon, absolutely boggled your mind by the discovery of water on the Moon. Please continue. Yeah, so the Moon is typically considered to be bone dry, and so it, it was suspected that maybe in these permanently shadowed craters <clears throat> that there might be some, some water ice. And this 2009 um, experiment uh, mission, as they struck the Centaur stage into the dirt, and kicked it up in the sunlight and confirmed, you know, one part out of 18, which is pretty high. That's enormous. It's, it's amazing. And overall, they estimate there's about 600 million or, or probably more uh, cubic meters of water in these permanently shouted craters and, and, in, and in the, um, the polar regions. Um, and, you know, I, I, I did a calculation that if you had a city of a million people on the moon that could access this water, that much water. Um, and if they were to recycle their water, it would last that city of a million about 1600 years. This is only um, the ice slash water in that one shadowed crater, right? No, no. I, it, it takes into account both sides of the moon, uh, north and south uh, poles. Okay. Uh, so all, all of the, all of the, the believed ice on, on the moon. Uh, and so, yes, Mars has, you know, much more resources, uh, you know, useful resources, but as, but there's no shortage at all on the moon, including of carbon and nitrogen, which, which they also found uh, within that ice. They so, also found it, another weird anomaly, and it's been a long time, I mean, you know, years literally since I looked at these papers, but one of the things that jumped out at me is they found, and I don't know whether you were tracking this, they found liquid mercury, the metal that you used to play with when you were a kid and you're not supposed yeah. to because mercury is really, you know, toxic yeah. and all of us used to handle it and watch yeah. it roll across glass and all that. They found as much mercury in liquid form in that rising cloud of material caused by the centaur impact as there was water. Yeah, so it's, you know, mercury is, is a liquid, um, it will at least at room temperature, and uh, unfortunately, it's, it's a contaminant. We'd probably prefer it not be there, but you should be able to, to extract it. Well, there are easy ways to extract it, to, to filter yeah. it out. The question I have, and these are questions that that's what we kind of do over here is we ask out-of-the-box questions. Where the hell did that amount of mercury come from, which is equivalent to the amount of water? frozen at the poles of the moon. I have not heard that there's as much mercury as there is water. I, I would sort of doubt that. I would have to I will send you the paper. That. Okay. <laughs> Which, of course, raises all kinds right. of amazing questions that this audience, I think, kind of knows where I'm going with this. But we'll, we will hold that to later in the program. Anyway, so this discovery kind of triggered your, oh, my God, bump. Last year, what was that? I said this discovery, this lacrosse discovery of abundant water accessible to future colonists mm -hmm. kind of triggered your whole 
oh, my God, this could change everything, right? Yes. And so what I did is I joined uh, some online forums uh, and began connecting with, with space advocates who are, who are lay people, but, you know, highly self-educated, shall we say. I mean, these people I don't consider to be experts. We call them and, citizen scientists over here. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And so, you know, any question I asked them, they, they had a, you know, an, an intelligent answer to, you know, educated answer. And so I began looking at each, you know, each aspect of, of lunar development. And the other thing I know, your friend, uh, David Livingston, he has the space show, also an internet radio uh, show. And so I found about, out about that. He interviews, uh, you know, experts within the field of, of space. Uh, and by that time, it was 2012 when I, when I really uh, became a space advocate. By then, there was about 11 years of archives uh, of hundreds and hundreds of, in fact, I think it was like 2,000 maybe, um, shows that he had done. And so I just started consuming all sorts of <laughs> audio files from the archives. You could not find a better source. I've known David for decades. In fact, way back when he was getting his Ph.D. at Stanford, we literally had a conversation in a restaurant with his kids. I think it was a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant. Hmm. Um, and he asked me what he should major in at Stanford. And one of the, one of the you know, kind of check items was space commerce, space business. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, oh, for God's sake, go there. That's the future. That's what's going to happen. And, of course, it's taken a long time, you know, a couple of decades or more for it to matriculate. But now we've got Bezos and Branson and Musk and the, the people in New Zealand and people in, in Seattle. In other words, the, the commercial exploitation and development of space is at the beginning of a, such an explosion. I have termed this the second age of space. So your proclivities to look in this direction, I think, are percent right on. And, you know, I understand people can become cynical after what happened in the 90s with, with uh, a number of uh, commercial space companies that went belly up. But I'm, I'm telling you, this is the time. It, it really is happening now. And it is going to be extremely historically significant. I mean, this is, you know, we'll, we'll get into what's happening down in, in uh, Boca Chica. We, you know, people need to understand this. We are watching something at the level, at least, of Christopher uh, Columbus, and, and certainly like, you know, Plymouth Rock and all of that. Uh, this is... I would more liken it to Lincoln's development of the Continental Railway during the Civil War. And the reason I say that is because there was a, there was a cliche around that, that before the Continental, Transcontinental Railway, the United States was impossible, and after, it was inevitable. What we've been missing in space to take a whole bunch of ordinary humans like you and me, both into Earth orbit and far beyond, has been an economic manufacturing industrial infrastructure, and that's what Musk and Bezos in particular are going to be able to set up, and the explosion is far down the road from Columbus. We aren't discovering a new world. We're going to be making several new worlds in our own image. Yeah, I think there's a lot of historic analogies that really are applicable. Um, for, for me, I, I sort of lean towards Christopher Columbus <laughs> analogy because um, 
because when people start to move beyond Earth, which is going to happen probably within the next 10 to 15 years, or actually probably less than 10 on the moon. Um, but wait, you, me, you think it's going to be that long? Um, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being conservative. You're being frankly. incredibly okay. conservative, Doug. Can I call you Doug? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's okay. how I go. All right. Actually. Call me Richard. Um, anyway, I think you're being incredibly conservative because this is not linear. It's asymptotic. Once you release, you know, what's that great poem, you know, slip the surly bonds of earth. Yeah. Uh, which Musk has, has allowed us to do because of his reusable mantra. The, the moon development is reusability in, 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 in space. Because as you just said a moment ago, if you identify a source of water on the moon, and then you use energy, sunlight, electricity, wherever the energy comes from, to split it. You've got rocket fuel. And with rocket fuel and below gravity of the moon, you can set up such an infrastructure of space industrialization, which, of course, will be what you know, commerce and, and tourists piggyback on. I'm thinking more like five years, maybe even four, not ten. No way, not ten. Well, well, I mean, let's be clear because there, there is steps. Um, so, so there, 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 there is what? Be, there is what? There, there's steps. You know, you, we, oh, we steps, steps. Okay. We can't jump to the final step. You know, settle. Why not? Uh, Why not? Who says um, we have because, to follow what the NASA plan has been and the von um, Braun plan was? For... I'm, not, I'm not talking NASA. SpaceX is going to land cargo on the moon and on Mars before they land humans. That's yep. just a. That's what you expect them to do for the sake of safety, okay? Well, it's kind of um, like Bob Zubrin's model. You know who Bob Zubrin is? Absolutely. President okay. of the National Space uh, – of not National Space Society, but Mars Society. Yep, yep. Yeah, very, very significant. He was an engineer at Lockheed Martin. He knows his engineering. And his idea was instead of going the Von Braun route back in the 50s where you send an expedition to Mars at once – he recommended, Zubin recommended that you send unmanned cargo vehicles, you position them, you actually manufacture rocket fuel, in this case methane, mm-hmm. out of the atmosphere. You preposition habitats, energy sources, uh, you, know, you, you have everything there waiting for your colonists to arrive. That's the model that I think you're describing for the moon, Right. Yes and no. Okay, I mean we, we are we are spreading multiple places. We are deep in the weeds. The yes, and we're going to get deeper. Believe me, the the Mars has an atmosphere. You can produce methane rather quickly. To be able to produce methane for for Elon Musk Starship on the Moon, that's a that's a totally different matter. I mean, I don't think there's enough concentration of carbon to be able to do that. Well, wait, wait, you just yeah. said the cross mission show there's a whole bunch of organics, which of course are based around carbon. There, there are, but you have to take a look at the, the concentration. Okay. So like, so at, like you, any mining enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, you know, one part of out of 18 uh, of the dirt on the moon uh, in, in these permanently shadowed craters, or at least that Cabeus crater uh, is, is water. Okay. And then, and then there's an additional, probably about a fifth, um, a, a concentration of, of, of that uh, is going to be organic, and it, but it's a mixture of things like hydrogen sulfide and and, and there is methane and carbon monoxide, uh, and there's also ammonia. Do but you happen become, to do you happen to remember what the inventory from the Apollo uh, samples was? I don't. 
but I know that we brought a lot of rocks and, and regolith dirt back. And I'd be curious to know what the percentage of carbon was just in the regolith. So, so these are volatiles. So, so they well, are. No, carbon easy. is carbon is not. Carbon, if it's separated, is not volatile. It's 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 like graphite. It's like you know, it's like pencil lead. It's like you know, it's 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 very it's solid. It doesn't evaporate. In so fact, carbon materials do... are very high temperature evaporation points. So, it could be mixed in the regolith. In which case, you just mine the regolith anywhere on the moon and you get your carbon. No, not anywhere. No, no, definitely not. Uh, it, the carbon is in is going to be down in the parts per billion in, in the equatorial areas that's exposed you know over the eons by sun. Okay. okay. So it just it bakes it bakes it out basically. Uh, and nitrogen is is almost completely uh, non-existent in in the in the dry parts. But in the permanently shouted craters where you have what appears to be perhaps cometary material you know into those craters and then have remained there you know, since, since the time that they, that they struck, um, those, we, we get decent concentrations. And I've, I've done some calculations to see if there's enough carbon to be able to, uh, to if, if you, if you uh, electrolyze the water and use the oxygen uh, to be able to refuel Starship, uh, then the side stream of carbon, I was trying to see how much uh, could be used to produce methane. Uh, and it's, it's not enough, but you might be able to get maybe a, a quarter or, or, or a third of the methane to be produced from the side stream of carbon. Um, what I'd like to point out, because this is, I think, very fascinating, is there is a company that's producing a transportation system to the moon that uses hydrogen and oxygen and doesn't deal with, with methane. And that's Blue Origin. That's, that's yeah, Bezos. Be- Bezos company. So yeah. uh, for people who are not following the TikTok on this, Describe why we've been talking about methane and Musk and methane, rocket fuel, and all that. What was the decision yeah. that Musk has made that Bezos has not made, which clearly separates these two billionaire space you know, commercialization companies on very separate tracks? Excellent question. This, this really lays the, the foundation of what we're talking about here. So, so what happens is both Musk and Bezos are both space advocates, but they have different uh, visions for state, space. And as a result, they've, cha- they've chosen different rockets and different propellants and different architectures for what they're doing. Um, so, and, and the beautiful thing is, is they can both succeed and, and uh, Musk opens up Mars, Bezos opens up the moon, and, and both are very relevant and you know, places to go, uh, completely legitimate places to go. So. Let's start with Musk. Musk um, has a view that the the best place to establish a second branch of humanity is Mars. And the main reason he does that is because of the resources on Mars. Um, So Mars is a a planet with with like three-eighths gravity, so it's more gravity than the moon, and so that's a plus. Uh, The key thing is Mars has this thin, it's about uh, one-half of one percent uh, thickness of or pressure of the atmosphere that we have on Earth. Okay, so there's a there's a sort of a wisp of atmosphere. But the beautiful thing is, you can uh, you know you can land a starship and you can just pump in pump in that air and concentrate it to even liquid concentrations. And it is about 95% carbon dioxide, 2% nitrogen in, in the form of N2, like like we have the majority of our air. 
uh, and then 2% argon, and it has a little bit of actual uh, oxygen and then some, some sort of trace, um, uh, trace gases. Uh, and so what Elon is saying is, let's go to Mars. And that's why he is literally building a Mars rocket down in Boca Chica. And he's designing it to be able to enter the atmosphere of Mars and be able to slow down and do a last-minute pulse of landing. Uh, and he feels the need to develop not just a Mars rocket, but a factory that will crank these things out as though they are, you know, 737. <laughs> uh, with the goal of making a thousand of these. Now, this may no, wait, when you say, I'm confused. Are you saying he wants to establish a factory for starships on Mars or on Earth? On Earth oh, in okay, Boca good, Chica. Good. Okay. And this factory is being built while we talk. Right. <laughs> it, it's actually going to happen. And his, his goal is to get a thousand starships, a fleet of a thousand of these bigger than Saturn V rockets and fully reusable. Okay. Um, and a thousand of them so that he can send a hundred people per starship every time the Earth Mars uh, launch window opens up. And then uh, over a period of, I think it is 10 or 20 years to be able to send a, a million people. I think it's 20 years to send a million people to Mars to be able to establish a, a million person city on Mars, which he believes is necessary uh, to achieve full self-sustainability. Okay. So that's, that's Elon. Is there anything else about his vision that uh, maybe I missed? Well, the thing that I want to go back to is why did Bezos and Musk choose totally separate paths? The, okay. reason, the reason Musk has chosen methane is because a la Bob Zubrin, remember the engineer we mentioned a moment ago? Sure. Bob was the first guy to say, look, you can manufacture methane as a rocket fuel in liquid form out of the CO2 atmosphere of Mars. Just, mm -hmm. just add energy, you know, have a factory there doing it. Um, and, and then Musk adopted that because with that, you can live off the land. Uh, if, in terms of the rocket equation, if you don't have to take the fuel to get back with you, if you can refuel at a gas station on Mars and then come home, the economics, the technical complexities drop extraordinarily. It's not linear. It's, it's nonlinear. So if you can basically make rocket fuel and on Mars, both Zubrin and Musk decided methane is the way to go. So Musk has designed his entire fleet of spacecraft around liquid methane and the production ultimately of a, of a set of gas stations on Mars to, to fuel literally his transportation system back and forth, right? So, so that is correct. However, I'm going to make a prediction here, and that is I think the vast majority of people that go to Mars mm -hmm. are not going to come back. Because why go all that distance to establish a city only to bring people back home and, and not leave people on Mars to establish that city? There, I could imagine NASA astronauts that I think will be perhaps some of the first people to land on Mars on a starship, not, not a U.S. government vehicle, but on starship. Uh, they may well come back. But I think after that, when we get more in private development, the people going are going to want to develop Mars. And you can't develop Mars if you come back. So, so yes, the whole methane uh, engines is based upon, uh, you know, Zubrin's idea of, of refueling and coming back. Uh, but uh, I think that they might just be sending the engines back to reuse. Uh, but I think they're going to use the metal of the starships 
uh, there uh, on Mars. And, you know, you'll have people going uh, to say this is this is very quickly what's what's going to be happening. Okay, well, I don't want to get into the details and argue any particular point. Yeah. We'll, we'll maybe save that for later toward, toward the end of the morning or maybe when you come back because there are additional things about Mars and the moon that I have a feeling you're not totally aware of that could change all of these plants. Remember mm-hmm. what they say that, you know, um, every war it goes to hell in a handbasket as soon as you make contact with the enemy? Making right. contact with the real moon and the real Mars I think is going to change an awful lot of things. But I would agree that that Musk's architecture, and we'll call building spacecraft and rocket ships architecture, is very different from Bezos because of their their destination points. Musk is focused on Mars. Gosh, I wonder why. And the audience knows why. And Bezos is focused on the moon. And that is going to create such an interesting uh, interconnection because these are not diametrically opposed systems. Right. Both can use both can use each other, and I'm I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will cooperate. I think these legal kabuki theater. I I, I do not see um, you know Bezos. A he's lost his first round. He's not going to win anymore. He needs to develop a negotiation with Musk, not look at him as a rival. Uh, I, I think we need to get to Bezos. Yes, exactly. Describe Bezos. Or what yeah, he so be- Bezos's history is that when when he was in high school, he he read a book uh, by by a famous uh, Princeton professor, Gerard O'Neill, uh, and Gerard O'Neill, um, you know, famously asked his question his students a question, and that is, where is the best place for an expanding technological uh, civilization in space? In free space, you know, where you know just empty space, or on a planetary surface. And uh, how the story goes is they concluded that spinning habitats in free space would be the, the best place because you can get a full G, you know, artificial gravity. Uh, and for kids growing up, uh, children, it's probably best to have a full G. So Well, if you want to come home to Earth or come back to Earth or visit sure. your grandparents, yeah. Or to avoid health problems while you're living there as well. Well, we don't know if there are health problems of lower gravity. True. We have no idea. Doctor, we have no idea yet. That's part of why you're going to want to go. (laughs) We there 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 are some experiments, but we we can get into that. I think we have some idea, and 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 the answer is probably even Mars gravity is insufficient. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Well, let, let me let me just let me just mention that um, we have plenty so, of time. These side canyons are very important. <laughs> so there was a study in which they took rats and they suspended the tail uh, and lifted off the force uh, five eighths of the force, and and what remained on the hind legs was three eighths, which which is Mars forces. Uh, and the, and they suspended the tail on little rollers in, in the cage, and so as it walked around, it had less force on its hind legs. And then when, when they, uh, after a period of time, they look at the bone mineral density of those hind legs, and unfortunately, those rats were developing osteoporosis. Just like astronauts um, do in zero gravity in the space station. Yeah, likely slower than what they do, you know, what happens in zero G. But still, if, if you have reduced forces on those legs, they develop osteoporosis. And so... Uh, you know, rats are not people, so maybe the story is different with people, but it does give some suggestion that, that we may need some artificial gravity, some spin gravity uh, to, to provide long-term health. 
Is it possible, this is going to sound like big pharma on, on steroids, is it possible we can develop drugs that can counteract the lack of normal 1G gravity? Because I know there are some experiments going on in the space station right now <clears throat> that are looking at exactly this problem. So we already do have medicines that help with that, and they're, they're used by people on Earth. They're not a, you know, a complete solution, and also there's multiple um, systems in the body that are affected or negatively affected. And so it's a bit of a whack-a-mole where you're trying to plug, you know, plug these holes with, with pharmacology. And, and I think um, especially the, the headward shifting of fluids, uh, that's, that's a bit of a challenge to, to treat pharmacologically. Well, not to get too diverted, but this is fascinating, and we're coming up at the top of the hour, so again, we'll pick this up on the other side. Uh, as a doctor, oh, what a, what a joy to talk to a doctor. Mm. Is it possible that humans born, can you imagine the first baby born on the moon, that humans born in one-sixth gravity will adapt? You know, life biology is incredibly adaptable, even all over the earth, you know, hot springs, you know, bacteria loving radioactive pools around reactors, stuff like that. Is it possible that in the uh, neonatal process that a woman having a child on the moon, the child will be perfectly adapted to 1,6G? Um, let me let me mention uh, a specific web page in, in which I address this, and, and your your listeners can go ahead and look at it. And you um, might want to also send it to Kinthea so she can post it in your section of radio with pictures. Yes. So it is developspace.info, and then it's AG protocol uh, um, slash uh, AG protocol. So AG is artificial gravity protocol, and it will redirect you to a diagram that shows the animal studies that would need to be done to be able to answer this question of the artificial gravity prescription. Okay. And people will need to see that because I was trying to write it and I could not write it. So uh, if, if I might, if I might say if if the listeners could go to developspace.info, this is a space development network. And this is something that if they would like to join the network for free, they can actually participate in, in simple ways to be able to help advance this plan for sustainable space development. We are at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Douglas Plata. He is a doctor. You know, he's kind of like Bones McCoy, wants to go into space. Um, done a lot of studying. And boy, are you going to be intrigued with what we're going to talk about next. You are on the other side of midnight here tonight from the Land of Enchantment with a past full moon rising grandly over the Sandias in the west, southwest actually for me. And that is Native American flute music. I thought it would be kind of appropriate tonight. Um, the good news about colonizing the moon, you don't have to move anybody out of the way. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
one of the ways that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not deposit money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet. Because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government's Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Anetta, and Kentia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. everyone to the other side of midnight from the land of enchantment here well 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 north of albuquerque in northern new mexico with a gorgeous clear starlit sky it's dry it's cool it's fall well technically it's fall but uh the the weather's good it's been good for the last couple three weeks uh not as much rain as it was earlier which has caused all kinds of problems i'm gonna have a report kind of on our logistics, our own infrastructure, probably in the next couple, three weeks, which I think will make a lot of our audience very, 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 very happy. I sound like Mary Tyler Moore when uh, when she was expecting a visit from Walter Cronkite at that little station in uh, the Midwest. Uh, Doug, do you know that uh, right before the launch of the Lacrosse mission, the uh, NASA people at NASA Ames 
who were behind that unmanned spacecraft. They literally dedicated to the mission to my old boss at CBS, Walter Cronkite. No, I was not aware of that. He was great, man. Well, he was such he was he was a space fanatic like you and I are. Mm, and yeah. uh, I mean, that, my audience knows you know a lot of the history of me and Cronkite. What I don't think they are aware of, and I'm going to mention it now because I guess you and I did talk about this many years ago. I had the incredible honor of working with Dr. Jerry O'Neill at Princeton uh, on his whole space colony concept, and he was of the firm opinion that a technological civilization does not belong on a planet. And for the sake of argument, we'll call the moon a planet, Mars, you know, that kind of thing. But the creation of free spinning artificial gravity uh, space colonies in in orbit at the L5 and L4 position in the Earth-Moon system, and he was going to build them. Uh, He's no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, But he was going to build them by slinging off the moon's surface through a magnetic catapult. He was a physicist, and he worked on high-energy electromagnetic levitation systems like uh, bullet trains, stuff like that. And he also developed uh, the counter-impacting particle accelerators, nuclear accelerators, for, you know, experiments like at CERN, uh, which are evolutions of his... Uh, physics and technology developments in in physics. Anyway, his idea was civilizations on planets are kind of obsolete, and the future of civilization, human civilization, is in space, in habitats, orbiting the Earth, orbiting the sun, and someday, you know, going between the stars. It's interesting that you fastened on this, which brings us back to Bezos. Why is Bezos choosing a totally different fuel-based architecture for his space development than Musk. So, so Bezos, when he was in, in high school, he read Gerard O'Neill's book, very famous book that influenced many space advocates, called The High Frontier, uh, in which uh, O'Neill laid out these, these concepts for these spinning uh, habitats. And even in his valedictorian speech uh, in high school, he you know, Bezos laid out, you know, this is our future. So, so he's been a committed space advocate from the very beginning. Um, I believe I've heard him say that actually he started Amazon in order to raise the money to be able to pursue this vision. So uh, Amazon is his not, it's a means to an end. Uh, and so what Bezos has done now, he's actually stepped down from, you know, day-to-day leading of Amazon and he's dedicating himself to his space company called Blue Origin. Now, uh, O'Neill envisioned, so, so there's a problem with spinning habitats, especially if you're outside of the Earth's magnetosphere, like if you're in L5, you, there's a lot of radiation in space, and it's a, and it's a big problem. And so the simplest way of dealing with radiation is to, is to just bulk up mass between you and the source of, of radiation. But it gets into like the millions of tons uh, that, of shielding that an elf, uh, colony would need. And so how do you get that sort of mass? You either get it from asteroids or you launch it off of the moon, which is this mass driver concept. And so lunar development, remember, this was shortly after the Apollo program when, when he came out with his book. Um, that, that is uh, Gerard O'Neill. Um, so people are focused on the moon. The moon has plenty of, of 
material resources. And so the idea was to go ahead and develop this mass driver to electromagnetically just throw um, basically dirt, uh, you know, chunks of dirt off of the moon and catch it and be able to uh, provide the shielding that a spinning habitat would need. Hmm. Do you know where the um, um, uh, uh, mass driver concept came from? I don't know. I know that oh, they had physical love, development. You're going to love this. <clears throat> it was first written about in great detail in a book by Robert Heinlein called um, – oh, I'm, I'm, oh blanking. Yeah. I'm blanking. Ah, The oh, Moon is the, the moon Harsh, is the harsh mistress. mistress. Yes. Yeah. The Moon is the Harsh Mistress. And the, I'm, we're not going to spoil the plot for people. You've got to get the book. You've got to read it. <laughs> but mass drivers oh, and AI play a huge part in the moon is the harsh mistress engineering firms took that and said be an alternative to rockets and there has been a lot of development particularly a guy named colm who um uh, uh jerry worked with uh for development of magnetic levitation uh, acceleration vehicles on earth but really in in uh, low gravity and an atmosphere less regime like the surface of the moon the mass driver concept really comes into its own. So let's say you need a couple of million tons of, of regolith for shielding with a mass driver on the moon and at the rate of, you know, electricity from the sun, solar power, you know, not, nothing expensive, incredibly cheap, 24-hour, you know, sunlight, you can send a million tons off the moon in just a week or two. I mean, the efficiencies are extraordinary. So the shielding problem with brute force, meaning you surround yourself with a lot of mass, which was a big problem in Jerry's day, has become much less of a problem as these technological developments have matured. Doug, are you there? Yes, I'm sorry. Oh, there you I accidentally, accidentally hit the mute button. Uh oh, that, that. That, that's a no-no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so um, there, there's uh, there's much better uh, advancement on on those ideas. Uh, in particular, a fellow Al Globus has uh, identified that if you are in orbit at about 500 kilometers up from the Earth's surface in an equatorial orbit, the radiation levels are, are dramatically less there uh, than than anywhere else uh, in in orbit, uh, inside or outside of the magnetosphere, and so you need dramatically less shielding at that location. Um, the, what I would say is all of these things are technically possible, but I think there is a natural order in which developments would occur. And that is we are going to, uh, Starship is going to land on the moon first. It will land on Mars second. And then to be able to get the, the material resources to wherever an O'Neillian habitat would be, that's going to take a lot longer. Uh, and so I think it's going to be sort of a distant third. Now, the O'Neillians... Uh, well, let me, uh, let me stop you there. We're, we're famous on this program for doing this. What, yeah. Jerry, what Jerry did not envision, because we didn't know it back then. Remember, Jerry O'Neill and all of us, part of his study group, you know, producing these plans for ultimately NASA Ames actually produced a study under NASA. And I was able to introduce Jerry to the Goddard Space Flight Center, where I was a uh, contractor, and they actually had him do an afternoon presentation uh, for all the scientists and engineers at Goddard. It was the first space colony 
presentation by the author at Goddard. And boy, did that ruffle feathers and kick up all kinds of furor behind the scenes. But, but, but the moon that Jerry was dealing with was not the moon we now know, because the moon that Jerry felt he had to work with that could only supply one thing, which is mass, stuff, mm-hmm. breaking down the regolith into things like metals, aluminum, and titanium, and whatever. There was no water. There was no oxygen. There was no organic. There was nothing but a dry, dead world. Now, because of lacrosse and subsequent, you know, uh, surveys like uh, by, you know, the LROC mission, et cetera, we know the moon is chock full of volatiles. So Bezos' idea of using a liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen rocket system reusable as opposed to a magnetic mass driver has completely changed some of the equation because if you've got an awful lot of water on the moon to breathe and to use as fuel, it changes everything. It really does. And, and, and so Bezos is very much an O'Neillian, but even he has been changed <laughs> based upon based upon uh, the finding of water, so that his, his blue moon lander concept, you know, he talked about it being refueled from lunar resources, and we didn't really have that confirmed until 2009. Yep. And, and, but he's still committed to the, the O'Neillian vision with, with spinning habitats in free space. And uh, Bezos has clearly stated his reason, and, and that is he believes, and, and this is rather dramatically different than Musk. You know, the, 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 the fundamental view is different between these two. So Musk says we need to, you know, the, the window in which consciousness is, is available is maybe a, a, a narrow window. We can't be for sure. Let's go ahead and establish a, a second branch of humanity on Mars. Bezos really doesn't have that view at all. He says the best planet by far in the solar system is the Earth. And what we need to do, it's sort of an environmental thing, we need to go ahead and get heavy industry off of Earth into orbit <laughs> so factories, okay? Uh, and we you, need you to... You know, I, I, let me interrupt again. You know who... I've not talked to Bezos, not yet, I will. I am betting dollars to Navy beans that in addition to you know, the literature that you said that he'd read, he also, in addition to O'Neill, had to have read Kraft Ericke. Mm. You know about Kraft Ericke? Yes. Okay. Rather famous. Um, yeah, I was incredibly honored to be a friend of Kraft way back in, in the day in the 70s. Um, I actually spent one Christmas uh, being entertained by him and his family at their beautiful house there in San Diego. And we had hours and hours and hours to talk. Hmm. Kraft was such a visionary genius. I would say that Kraft, if, if you think of Werner von Braun as this super genius visionary who basically created the American space program. Mm-hmm. Kraft Ericke was about 10 to a hundred times better. Wow. And nobody paid attention. I remember I was at the Hayden planetarium one afternoon and I got a phone call and the receptionist said, uh, you have a call, Mr. Hoekland. I said, who is it? And she said, uh, Dr. Ericke. So I instantly picked up, of course. And I said, what, what? He said, Richard, he said, they won't let me publish. This was the, hmm. Space infrastructure crowd, American Rocket Society, you know, National Space Society, whatever here in the country. He said, I'm going to have to go to the Soviet Union to get my book published on how we do this in terms of infrastructure in the out years. He had two huge books, and you're going to want to 
uh, write them down and I will send Kintia the links, you know, if not during the show, after the show. One was called The Extraterrestrial Imperative, meaning mm-hmm. that in his mind, we were impelled, demanded, forced by evolutionary needs to inherit space and the solar system and make them part of human, you know, the human sphere of influence to put them to use for the benefit of humankind. And the other book, which is what obviously Bezos read carefully, cover to cover, was called The Magnificent Heritage, meaning you do not break up the furniture in your living room to keep yourself warm. You build a furnace in a separate room. So the idea of taking industrial development into orbit and keeping the living room clean and pristine, i.e. the mm-hmm. earth, directly from craft Eric. Interesting. Yes, I'm certainly aware of him. Uh, so back to, to Bezos, Bezos has famously said that he wants, you know, after you remove heavy industry uh, to orbit, that you should, you know, in, in quotes, you should rezone Earth to be light industrial and sort of, uh, I forget, residential light industrial is what he says. <laughs> in yep. other words, it's sort of returning Earth uh, to a, a more natural state and something that's more pleasant to live in. And so that's really his perspective is, you know, developing space for the benefit of Earth, okay? And, and he doesn't seem to have uh, really any concerns about, you know, extinction events like, like Elon Musk has. Well, so. uh, stopping this for a moment, just as an individual, as a doctor, mm-hmm. don't you find those two different philosophies very intriguing? Absolutely, yeah. And why I'm each not- one holds their view? Where did that come I, I, from? I've met so many people who just have different views. I mean, I, I, it's, it's almost like every person on this planet has some sort of different view. And it's hard to explain why we all don't think like me, because obviously <laughs> I have the best views, you know? <laughs> or you would say the same about yourself, you know? So I, I, I can't explain it. <laughs> well, to me, Musk is more realistic, because if you look at the past history of the planet, most of the history of the planet is of folks and organisms and biomes and species that are no longer here. In other words, the history of Earth is extinction. And what Musk is looking at is how to prevent the extinction of humanity. And Bezos almost comes across as a guy who says, if this goes on, meaning that with right. slight differences, civilization as we know it is just going to go on and on and on and there'll be no hiccups there'll be no like stephen jay gould's punctuation equilibrium events like the asteroid that took out the dinosaurs or stupid people that i mean we came within a whisker a few months ago of nuclear war with china for god's sake absolutely unequivocally documented we were so close we haven't been that close since the height of the Cold War with the Russians decades ago. So Bezos' idea that this will go on and we can just make it better, I think in the long run, I'm more in the must camp because you have got to uh, put into industrial motion the Musk mant- uh, the Musk, the NASA mantra, which is no single point failure. As long as humanity is on Earth, a single point it can fail. Musk's idea, I believe, is to establish humans as a multi-planet species. 
and then you can use that broadly to think of space habitats, et cetera, et cetera, using resources right. out there. But you build other places where if the worst case scenario took place, uh, look at La Palma tonight, you will have a backup. You will have no single point failure. So I think in the philosophy game, I'm much more of a Musk vision than I am the Bezos vision. Yeah, I hear you. And, and I, I share concerns. I, I don't, you know, I don't really believe the, the inherent goodness of mankind. I think that as technology develops, it will be used for good and bad. And man, the self-replicating technology, biotech, self-replicating chemicals, and nanotech, mm. before the end of the century, you're going to have graduate students with desktop gene printers and, and nano you know, printers uh, of you know, these graduate students of varying you know, mental stability, <laughs> you know, sort of the weakest <laughs> link. Uh, you know, the, the, the self-replicating technology can go anywhere where air exists on Earth, uh, and that's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, think, um, I think there's good reason to be concerned about the future of humanity. And you want honestly. to separate, you don't want to pull all your basques in one exit. Yeah, that's, that's prudent. I mean, if you, if you think there's nothing out there that's going to prevent us from, from killing ourselves. But, but see, yeah, well, well, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we're going to actually, actually three hours is running very fast. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I do not see these as diametrically opposed philosophies. I think there's an interesting interweaving. It's not an either or. It's a both. You need both. Well, well frankly, I think reality is going to um, surprise Bezos because, because here's, <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, I'm, I'm generally more in favor, you know, I'm more of a fan than Musk than, than Bezos. Okay, although I, I want both to, to succeed, certainly. Okay. But if I, if I was a betting man, I would put my money on Bezos. And, and here's the reason. The moon is three days away. You could do a round trip with refill and whatnot in, in about 11 days. You could launch, land, you know, discharge, cargo or crew, come back. You know, check it out, refuel, launch again in about 11 days, cycle to the moon, okay? For Mars, the Earth-Mars launch window opens up every only once every 26 months. So starships to Mars can only be used every 26 months, whereas every 11 days, a, a New Eagle lander could, could deliver, you know, about 45 people to the moon or 45 tons uh, to the moon. Every 11 days. Okay, we need to tell people Bezos has named his spacecraft and rockets in a very interesting historical progression. Yeah. Um, the the, uh, the uh, tourist flights are, are, are called um, uh, Shepherds. New, new Shepherd, <clears throat> suborbital. And the orbital flights are called New Glens. Mm -hmm. And the moon stuff, which includes a hydrogen en engine architecture, reusable with fuel you split on the moon, water and oxygen, hydrogen, all that. That's called New Armstrong. So he's got a vision, and mm -hmm. it's anchored in extraordinary reality. In terms of surprises, I think it's only going to be the surprise will be the rate of development because all the pieces are there. He's developed the engines, the liquid hydrogen-fueled engines. By the way, do you know who the pioneering engineer was who developed liquid hydrogen-fueled engines? Well, Goddard, wasn't it? No. Craft Ericke. Goddard no. developed liquid fuel engines 
Eric E. developed on, uh, with, uh, under Convair when they came over well after Paperclip, he worked on the Centaur system and the hydrogen fuel liquid rocket engine to use hydrogen, which is infernally complex to use. Right. Right. And he was the guy. He was the genius that figured out the engineering. Von Braun specialized in hydrocarbon fuels like alcohol and kerosene, RP1, whatever. And Eric, he took on the, the incredible, insurmountable task of taming liquid hydrogen. So all of Bezos' mission is based on Kraft Eric's development of that engine. I swear so, he had to have read Kraft's books. Had to. Had to. Could, could well, could well. The, the, the very interesting thing is um, Blue Origin is a much slower company than SpaceX. You and think? In fact, <laughs> yeah. And, and much fact, more secretive. That's, that's the true. other thing I've been kind of curious about. Bezos, you'd think he'd be crowing like Musk does. No, everything is really layered in secrecy. And like the Russians of old, he only unveils things when they work. Exactly, which which you could understand. No, I, mean, I don't that, understand, because well, if you that, want public look, support, part of the reason that Musk is at the head of the list of people supporting him, he's a showman. He makes people so intimate with his successes and failures, they identify with him. They do not identify with Bezos. Bezos is the space guy you love to hate, particularly because he pays no taxes. I, I, I mean, I mean, uh, Bezos is the richest man in the world. I think both these guys now have the financial means to accomplish their goals. Um, what, what, and so I, you know, I, I don't think that there's a, a you know, a, a hindrance to Bezos to doing this. But, um, but back, back to my point, and that, and this is a very critical point. You can do round trips to the moon. It's 70 times faster than you can do round trips to Mars. Okay, 70 times. That's a huge number. Bezos is, his company is going slower. Their, their motto and, and their logo is, is basically a, a, a tortoise. It's a, it's a slow, <laughs> steady, supposedly slow and steady wins the race. Well, I, I've never been to a race where the slower person wins. Okay, but his, it's, it's a wonderful um, children's, what, what do you call it, the book? Fable. About the horse. Yeah, fable. It's a fable. It's a children's fable, and his philosophy is based on a children's fable. Well, I, I think it should be based on reality, but but nonetheless. <laughs> so so he is he started earlier than SpaceX, but it has only gone suborbital and not orbital. And we should probably explain to your listeners the difference because it's a huge difference. Huge. He is developing the new Glenn, which is an orbital rocket. You know, um, and. I believe that if he can refuel the new Glenn in orbit, he will not have to go to the new Armstrong, but can use, can develop an Earth-Moon transportation mm. system. Kind of uh, like Buzz Aldrin's cycler? No, more like SpaceX Starship that re refuels in orbit. It's a two-stage, and the upper stage becomes the lander, becomes the, the cis-lunar vehicle and lander. Okay. So, so frankly, I mean, New Eagle is is not something that Bezos has ever said. This is my term for a for a new Glenn based lander that is 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 refueled in orbit and then and then goes and lands and then gets refueled from from the ice in, in, at the lunar poles. Right. Uh, hydrogen and oxygen, full full refueling. Okay, hydrolock is what we call it. 
And then what it does is after being refueled, it ascends up to an Earth-Moon gravitational balance point called EML1, where the next vehicle being launched, uh, the, the next new Glenn, can go ahead and send a craft between low Earth orbit and this gravitational balance point, EML1, and then transfer cargo or crew or, or, or propellant modules uh, to, to the lander to, to ascend down. And it would begin with refueling on the moon, the, the capability of this system would begin to approach that of Starship. No question. Hey, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Okay. My guest this morning is Dr. Douglas Plata. We're having fun exploring visions. How do you keep the human race alive? You obviously move the industry out of the living room. You save the planet from industrial pollution. You completely eliminate excess carbon production, et cetera, et cetera. And you got the advantage of resources only three days away, even by chemical rockets, which are based on hydrogen and oxygen. It's almost like a no-brainer. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs. $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone from the land of enchantment on this saturday evening weekend the 25th watching la palma please everyone put that alert from the usgs or the la palma monitors on your phone because again it's a low probability event but so was what uh, took out the dinosaurs and we have the infrastructure now you can get alerts from earthquakes in any region on the planet anywhere on the planet in this gadget you carry around with you like uh like some you know forlorn lover everybody has a phone these days put the alert on it particularly with your you know have friends and relatives in these uh coastal areas or you're in the 
coastal areas yourself, this is, we are not kidding. This is maybe low probability, but we live in such uncertain times and nature is becoming increasingly unpredictable based on the old models. I mean, a 90-minute earthquake on Mars? 90 minutes? Imagine the energy. Anyway, put that little alert on your phone, keep it with you, and you will be um, well ahead of the game. My guest this morning, speaking of Mars, is Dr. Douglas Plata, and we're having a lot of fun exploring the philosophies, the separate philosophies of space industrialization, commercialization, and habitation by the two leading players in the game, um, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Uh, let me let me show you a curve, um, uh, Doug. Let me ask you this one. Why do you think that Branson doesn't seem to be in this game at all in terms of deep space and orbit and moon, etc.? Unmuting helps. He has airlines, record companies, all sorts of things. Uh, he has Virgin Galactic, uh, and this is a suborbital. Um, it's it's a plane that drops a, a, a smaller space plane from it, and then and then that plane shoots up and pops out into space, and then falls falls back. But you get to space, and so you're you are technically an astronaut, maybe. Um, <laughs> I uh, love that caveat. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the, they've already the the the, the um, um, whatever the international body is, I forget what it is at the moment. They have decided that civilians that go suborbital and experience weightlessness for uh, a few minutes, as opposed to going into orbit, they are a different class of astronaut. I'm yeah. I'm, thank goodness, because you know the, the guy like Glenn. You don't want to put you know a tourist in the same category as John Glenn. Come on, come on. So yeah, I agree. they have done this appropriately, and it will be something you can put on your wall and show all your friends and brag about at cocktail parties, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it will not detract from the real astronauts that, that are ba- makes basically opening up the high frontier. Yeah. So, so I, mean, I mean, let's explain to your, to your listeners about the difference between suborbital and orbital, because I think it makes it, – it's really significant, okay, because people think, oh <laughs> – you know they, they you know they they pop out into space and, and and therefore they're doing you know they're playing in the same big leagues as as you know as orbital craft so basically what it is remember the earth is a, is a sphere uh, with with a thin rather thin atmosphere um, and what happens is you can go vertically directly up and you can pop out of the atmosphere into space and and you know it's black and everything uh, and then what happens is you fall back in and you go and land. Okay, you've done a suborbital uh, trip into space. And all okay. the while you're falling until the atmospheric resistance increases to a certain point, you are in basically zero gravity. Well, you're in free fall, which certainly feels like zero gravity. Uh, you're just floating around, you know, relatively, you're, 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 it's, it's like you're in zero gravity. Okay, but to get to orbit, you not only have to pop out into space, but you have to go horizontally so fast that by the time you fall back down, you're already on the side of the planet and you can just keep going around around the planet, falling towards the center, being attracted towards the center of the planet, but you know, just keep going around and around. Um, 
the energy, the, the velocity necessary to, to go pop out in space and fall back down versus pop up and then go horizontally really fast, the velocity has to be eight times higher to remain in orbit than just to pop out in space, okay? Now, for those of you who took physics, remember kinetic energy is one-half mv squared. Mm. So if you take that eight times faster and figure out how much energy or how much more propellant you need, well, it's 64, 64 times more propellant. And then you run it through the, the rocket equation, <laughs> which, uh, you know, and, and air resistance and all of that, uh, it, 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 you can very quickly see that getting into an orbit is a whole nother matter. Um, it, it requires at least two stages. You can, um, where, whereas, uh, and if I could uh, refer to the um, picture, is it radio and pictures or pictures? Radio, radio? with pictures, just click on radio. Uh, Click on Doug's link under the banner at the top of the guest page. Just click on that where it's Doug, and that will take you right to uh, Doug's fascinating. By the way, Kinthea was able to add developspace.info slash APRO ag protocol. So it's right there so people can find out about biology and medicine and all that in that link, right? I hope it's AG protocol. Yeah, it is. Artificial yeah. Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah. AG protocol. AP. Yeah. Um, so my picture number two is the New Shepard. This is a suborbital craft by Blue Origins, you know, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin. You'll notice that it's a single stage, little interesting shape, uh, but it's a, just a single stage, just enough to pop up and down. Fascinating, it is a hydrogen engine. The fuel is hydrogen there. Um, and there's a reason for that. You wouldn't normally, you'd normally use kerosene and liquid oxygen, but he chose hydrogen because he really is lunar oriented and he knows about the water on the moon. Um, well, he's so developing his, his technology for lunar resources as opposed to suborbital exactly. flights. Yeah. Exactly. Now, we are talking about Branson's, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, and in, in number three is this, uh, is this, mother craft that drops down the small uh, spacecraft that goes it's more like a plane really space plane. well it's kind of like when the x-15 was carried up by the b-52 back in the 50s exactly exactly number four is starship now this this is spacex this thing is huge it, it just it's 165 those. feet high what you're seeing there that's half the size of the saturn V. the full stack the booster to go into orbit or to go to the moon with Starship is 395 feet tall and 38 right. feet wide, which is five feet wider than the Saturn V, which was 33 feet. Musk does Far. not think small. <laughs> no, uh, biggest biggest rocket in history. He's building that down in Texas. And, and so far, Richard, we, we really need to talk about what's happening there in Boca Chica. Well, that was my <laughs> next question. God, okay, you're, you're reading my it. mind. Why, why, you know, all the NASA people, the Army, whatever, Von Braun, when he got into and paperclip and was brought over, they ultimately wound up doing their suborbital and orbital test flights from Florida because you have a big ocean to drop rocket stages in and you're not going to kill anybody. Why did Musk choose Texas and why did he choose this little tiny town on the Gulf Coast, Boca Chica? Uh, Pretty straightforward. Um, Florida is sort of rather populated. <laughs> um, and, and so building a new state port, uh, new spaceport there doesn't make much sense. He, he, 
he got he won the contract to to use one of the you know the Apollo launching sites in Florida. So he's based in Florida. Yeah, Pat thirty nine A, incredibly mm-hmm. historic. But what he did is he he chose the property is at the furthest south you can get in Texas, and and it's a beach called Boca Chica. And you go any further and you're into Mexico. So he got down towards the equator as much as possible because it takes advantage of the spin of the Earth. You already, the Earth is spinning about 1,000 miles per hour at the equator. Right. You know, 25,000 miles in 24 hours. That's about 1,000 miles per hour. And so he got down as far down towards that as possible so that you already get the, the velocity of the Earth throwing your rocket towards the east. Okay? So, um, so from Boca Chica, he's launching... Basically east? Yes. So he's got Caribbean. so he's got a lot of well, the Gulf of Mexico. Or Gulf of Mexico. He, he's got a lot of water between him and Florida to drop stages in, like from launching from the east coast of Florida, you've got the entire Atlantic Ocean before you see Africa. So it's it's, it's similar ideas except totally right. different bodies of water, plus he's is closer to the equator at Boca Chica than Cape Canaveral is in Florida. Only I wouldn't say drop stages, but land stages on, on well, a barge. Uh, well, on a well initially, initially he was dropping stages. Now he's recovering. But if you don't recover, what happens? Well, then it drops. Exactly. <laughs> Into the ocean. Yeah. Exactly. Fair enough. And, and, and the first stage, uh, he, uh, SpaceX is within a few months, you know, I, I'm guessing before the end of this year, they're going to attempt a, an orbital launch of this starship that they are building down in Boca Chica. Um, and that, in my opinion, is uh, a, a, a transition point. Because, because in, in fact, I wrote an article on that. Um, do, do you know, um, Cynthia, if you posted that article, uh, a link to that article? Um, anyhow. So I, I wrote an article in the Space Review. If you uh, Google um, uh, Starship Space Review, the, the top link will, will be my article there, in which I make the case that the moment uh, SpaceX is able to get a super heavy lift vehicle, this is something bigger than the Saturn V moon rocket, the moment you get that upper stage up into orbit, you basically have something that is, that is uh, more capable and far, far less costly than the government big rocket, the, the SLS rocket. And I, I think when this happens, there needs to be a policy reckoning of saying, SpaceX is clearly developing this, this capability. What, uh, how is the U.S. going to take advantage of it? Because it's going to be with us very quickly. Well, remember, NASA's mantra is not to develop space. NASA's mantra is to spread the money around to all congressional districts so the local congressmen get reelected because they're doing things and bringing jobs for the folks back home. And, with, and the federal government has money to burn. <clears throat> really, come on. So I don't see there be a policy change. If there really had been intelligence at NASA that wanted to develop space and do the things that Musk and Bezos are doing, they would have done it already. So you have these two tracks. It's kind of like you've got mammals and dinosaurs. NASA is the dinosaur in terms of human spaceflight, and, you know, uh, the mammals are Musk and, and Bezos, and we know what happened to mammals. They won. So, 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, the shuttle system was set, was shut down and jobs were lost. So I'm, I'm, uh, remain somewhat hopeful that when reality hits them in the face, because up until this point, there has not been a replacement for the, for the space launch system, the, the, the government's super heavy lift vehicle. When Starship gets to orbit, that will be the first demonstration that we are really on the verge of having a capability superior than what the government has been pursuing for the last decade. Mm-hmm. And um, it's we, supposed to be totally reusable. Right. Which is which itself That's again it, it, absolutely it, it it is it's the holy grail of rocketry is, is complete reusability. Because as as all space advocates know, a a um an expendable rocket uh is like an expendable plane, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's like getting on your 747, flying to Manila, and then dumping it in the ocean. Yeah, that's you know the ticket would be extremely expensive, and that has been the case for rockets. Oh, oh, um, parenthetical. Musk is also talking about taking Starship and, with slight mods, converting it into a point-to-point terrestrial transportation system where you leave from Long Island, you know, arbitrary place, and you arrive in Singapore. An hour later, or less. Yeah. Or less. So, uh, so back to Boca Chica. Um, so, what Elon and what SpaceX have decided is to build a new super heavy launch site in a, in a completely new place in the country, in, in Texas, on the coast of Texas. Um, and um, and so. What uh, what they are doing is they are not only building the rocket. Can you and, uh, hang on, Linda? Can you check your Skype because I think Cynthia's got the right link to your Space Review Starship piece. So that is that link is correct. Okay, so she needs to put the, that on on your page in Radio okay. Pictures. Terrific, Cynthia. Very good, as usual. <clears throat> and so um, and so what it is is they are. Uh, they are building and testing, you know, that you can see the systematic uh, sort of testing. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, let's hold on. I'm posting that because she's, uh, let me see if, uh, okay, we'll continue. Yeah, not that one. Um, so, so what it is, is they are building not only the rocket and developing it, um, but um, uh, they are um, building a factory. Which, which is the hardest thing to do, so that they can crank these things out for dirt cheap um, and, and rapidly. Talk and about they, talk, uh, this is amazing because talk about Musk and his love affair with stainless steel. <laughs> yes, uh, that was a surprising uh, choice. Um, not really, not if you look at space history. But go ahead, go ahead. Um, so, so what it is is um, normally to, to be able to get a fully reusable uh, rocket uh, to orbit and retrieve both the first and the second stages, you you're already at the bleeding edge of of what can be done uh, in terms of physics, uh, and so it is. Um, um, so what it is is they. <clears throat> Um, have to reduce the mass of these stages as much as possible. Uh, and so you go with uh, aluminum, because aluminum is, is certainly more lightweight than steel. 
Um, or you can go with carbon composite, which is even lighter because that's made out of carbon, which you know, yeah, I stable think is. the shuttle's external tank, that big orange thing that held all the fuel, mm-hmm. <clears throat> was a very high-grade aluminum with lithium right. in it called some kind of alloy, but it was stronger, lighter, et cetera, et cetera. But Musk came up with another wrinkle. Yeah, so he chose steel, and, and the reason <laughs> is that steel uh, melts at a, at a higher temperature than aluminum. Of course. And so as you do re-entry, and you're trying to recover that upper stage of Unless, of course, velocity. you build big buildings out of it in New York and smash planes into them, and then it well, seems yeah. to melt at weirdly below <laughs> temperatures. That's a whole other discussion. Sorry, Barbara, I had to do that. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, so, so what happens is... Um, when you do re-entry, it matters what the melting point is because if you have a higher melting point, it will have structural integrity for longer, and you can have thinner uh, uh, heat uh, heat shield um, those tiles, and and therefore you can reduce mass. So when you look at it all together, um, actually uh, stainless steel actually performs very well. Uh, and it with, looks with so cool. That is very true. That's that true. Musk is building spaceships that look like Tom Corbett Space Cadet or Space Patrol, or I mean, they look like rocket ships should look like. Um, he 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 saw a movie in which uh, a, a dictator says, "I want the rocket to be more pointy." And so, what does Elon do? He tells his guys, his engineers, "Can we make it more pointy? <laughs> Not because that's going to be better, but because he likes movies and he because he, he understands if you don't involve the public, you ain't going yeah. to go nowhere." So, um, so the so he he did look at using carbon composites. Mm-hmm. But he went with steel because of its good performance for reentry. But the second thing is you can work with steel much easier. <clears throat> you can iterate much faster. Um, and uh, so that's why he, he chose to go with steel. And it looks sexier. No, uh, all kidding aside, the first major U.S. government rocket to attack the Soviet Union, if they attacked us, the Atlas was mm-hmm. a stainless steel rocket, and right. its skin was so thin that it had to be inflated by internal pressure, like helium. And if it lost pressure, it sagged onto the launch pad like a, like a punctured balloon. It was wow. held up literally by the internal pressure of the uh, vaporization of, of, of oxygen and, and uh, uh, helium to, to fuel the... the uh, other other oxidizer it was not a, a hydrogen fuel engine system it was a kerosene based anyway the point is that he looked at that must look at that heritage obviously had his engineers say could we bring this up for the 21st century and they said yes and one other advantage steel when you cool it down remember he's got huge tanks in the heavy super heavy that have liquid oxygen mm-hmm. when you super cool it down the steel alloy he's now using gets stronger right and, and and that was also part of what figured into his his decision to go with with steel he says the decision to go with steel is the best design decision that, he, that he's made for starship so far without doubt and it yeah. looks so cool <laughs> so so boca chica is like a state beach i think 
Uh, and there, there's some environmental and FAA issues uh, that they need to get permission, you know, do an environmental review before they're able to do this launch. The big um, one. The, yeah, the Starship. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's what I'm, you know, the, 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 yeah. the, the super heavy um, first Starship to orbit. What Elon has, has, is wanting to do is to actually start a new town down there, a new city called Starbase. Texas. Gosh, I wonder where he got that from. <laughs> where? Do you, can you tell me? Can, Roddenberry. Ah. Come on, <laughs> Starbase. Right. All right, so let me, let me interrupt again. Mm-hmm. Why the hell is Bill Shatner going with Bezos and not with Musk? I imagine. Tell me he's not paying life. for it. But somebody would pay for it. And so so that, that the only people that can pay. afford this are billionaires that have been raised on Star Trek. I mean, I, I guarantee you William Shatner has zero problem raising money to go into space. Zero, zero, zero. So why is he choosing five minutes of zero gravity when he could have five days? I still think it's price, but but hey. <laughs> you know, at, at least he, you know, at least the great Captain Kirk is, is, is going to space <laughs> after all these years. Yeah, and given the fact that Musk is calling his launch point Starbase One. Come on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right out of Star Trek. <clears throat> Bill, if you're listening, I'd like an answer. I'd, I'd really like to have you on the show. <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> you know, this is, an, um, this is an arena, Doug, where you cannot pinch pennies. All right. Can you imagine yeah. Shatner, Captain Kirk, in orbit with the Earth behind him singing? He sings. He writes music. He writes poetry. He has philosophies. He's become a, a person of incredible perspective and depth on cultural issues of where we are right now. To, to, to prohibit him from having the orbit experience and forcing him to do something in five minutes is nuts. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a real... A uh, fan of suborbital. I mean, I, I think uh, for people who can't afford the orbital, which would be, you know, far more people could afford the suborbital than the orbital. Yeah, but um, not Bill but, Shatner. Come on. Yeah, well, I don't know what his finances are. It's but, not. But, he's I mean, not paying for it. Let me say again. Yeah, yeah, no. I'm sorry. Yes, but whoever would, and I don't know who we're talking about here. So it has to be somebody for whom twenty mil is like twenty dollars. Come on. Sure. You know, it's like, oh, that, what, what, what's that great cliche? If you have to ask the price, you can't afford it. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> so I think uh, Starbase, Elon is making this basically a, a, a spaceport where... He's making it a prototypical Mars colony community. Come on. Exactly. And, and, uh, Which I, is I excellent wonder... prototyping. You know, you've got yeah. sewage, you've got water, you've got fuel, you've got resources, you've got everything he can prototype on Earth at Boca Chico that he then transports to either the moon or ultimately Mars. So I have not heard him promise to make a, a Mars colony replica at Starbase. Um, I think that would be very interesting, and, and I'm actually sort of working myself towards, towards seeing that happen. Well, he could do a Disney. What's to prohibit yeah. him from the world of tomorrow setting up a whole enclave where people come, they pay money to basically live in a Martian colony under all those strictures as a prelude to someday some of them going? So I 
And I'm not sure there's going to be so many strictures. If strictures, you mean limited space, living space, I think inflatables can get around that rather easy. And I, I can describe that. Mm, we got four minutes till the top of the hour. So, <laughs> so um, Starship is supposed to transport at least 100 metric tons to orbit. And then with refueling, that 100 metric tons can go on trans-Mars injection or, or you know, the pathway to Mars and land on Mars. Okay, so the the inflatable habitats have five different layers, uh, and uh, I have I have the numbers. Are we uh, talking Bigelow technology now? Uh, very much like Bigelow, except Bigelow the the three that he has in orbit right now. So technology readiness level number nine. These things are in space right now. One of them's on the International Space Station. Two of them uh, were, were launched earlier. Um, those uh, as free-flying sub-subspace stations. Yes, exactly. Now, if you are going to have inflatables in orbit, you got to be concerned about number one, uh, orbital debris, and number two, micrometeorites. Okay, which means you have to have an outermost layer that is by far it, it more than doubles the mass. Okay, it's the MMOD micrometeorite orbital orbital debris layer. Um, if you are on the moon or if you're on Mars, you can just cover your habitat with the local dirt. You can have, you know, telerobots do that. Um, and you don't need that outermost layer. So how much of a footprint could it, could an inflatable uh, be packed into a 100-ton Starship payload? Okay, so I've, I've, done, I've done the calculations. If you transport it layer by layer, separate layers, then the footprint can be between eight and nine acres. Would, would be the the size of what you could what you could build up with one um, starship well not with one starship it would be multiple starships but the question is is the 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 layer you can't divide is the airproof layer and so how big an airproof layer can you fit within 100 tons and the answer is between eight and nine acres now you you would first have the abrasive regolith layer and then through an through an airlock you you put in the, the kevlar straps and then you put in the, the airproof layer number one and number two, and then the inside layer. Okay, Kintia tells me that item number 14 in your radio with pictures, Starship to Orbit, is up. Thank you, Kintia. We try to please. <laughs> and we are at the top of the hour. So everyone hold it there. My guest of this morning is uh, Dr. Douglas Plata. We are having so much fun exploring the out years as they euphemistically say in Washington, of space development when people, just ordinary, you know, carpenters and plumbers and arc welders and doctors, 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 and uh, students and all that can go and live on the moon and someday on Mars. And maybe they can get the kind of foretaste of the experience like space camp used to give people in Alabama, actually it still does, a taste of being in space Maybe they can do it at Boca Chica when Musk lays out his Starbase One. Wow, what a time to be alive. You're on the other side of midnight, coming to you from the land of enchantment here in the high desert, in the great American Southwest, as Art used to say. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone. It is now Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. I just had a wild and crazy idea. Um, if we're having the battle of the bands, in other words, we're having a battle between Musk and Bezos, why don't you guys take it to the next level? Elon, why don't you offer Bill Shatner a comped mission into Earth orbit, to the space station? Outbid Bezos. Tell Bezos to go, you know, take this job and you know what. In other words, Bill Shatner, Captain Kirk, belongs on a starship. He does not belong in the suborbital New Shepard flight. Now, have I put the cat among the pigeons? Doug, what do you think? Am I crazy or could this happen? Unmuting helps. We can hear you now. Um, it, it, would that cause some health problems by being in space for three days? I doubt it. Actually, I think he could, he could probably survive it fine. See, you're the perfect guy to ask because you're a doctor. I've been looking at this. You know, I'm not anywhere near Bill's age, but I'm looking, you know, at this and could I in my condition, if I got in myself in condition, um, and given the database we have so far, remember John Glenn? Mm -hmm. Remember when he went to orbit and spent like a week and then came back? How old was he? He was was like 86, 88, something like that? I think so, yeah. So So I I don't see this as an impediment at all. I just, uh, this may sound dumb, but I just have a feeling it's a failure of imagination on somebody's part. I'm Captain Kirk belongs in a starship. Come on. <laughs> okay, drive that home. <laughs> so where were we? You know, the, the, this this uh, this calf is running all over this heifer, all over the uh, barnyard. So yeah, yeah, it's fun. Um, I mean, maybe we should begin to start transitioning from how do we get there to what we do when we get there. Oh yes, yes. Why? Well, why is any of this important? Why should the quote, average listener, the average person, why should they give a damn? Remember, the way this has been framed in the media, it's the battle of the bands. It's the battle of the, of the billionaires with no connection to Earth. The only mainstream anchor that got what's really going on is Stephanie Rule. And her background is not media, not networks. It's finances. 
She was an officer in one of these, you know, major banks. So she understands the economic multiplier factors of exporting ordinary workers into orbit, et cetera, et cetera. She actually had tears the morning of Bezos' flight because she saw how this opens up psychologically the high frontier. So why do we want to go? Why should any of us care tonight that these guys are battling it out? So, you know, a a lot of people say it only matters uh, if I can go. In other words, the democratization of space, you know, to where you can save up your money and you can do a suborbital or, or, you know, Elon, frankly, with full reusability, uh, he wants to be able to send people for between $200,000 and $500,000. And so that's something that somebody could save up. That's like a house. Yeah. That's a house these days. Yeah. Yeah, and so if you and you can, and you and you can get a mortgage, I'm sure to pay it off like you pay off your house. Yeah, so that buys you the ticket. But I'm guessing that they are going to require that you have enough money to provide your own life support once you get there. Huh. <laughs> In other words, it's more than just the the, the ticket. You 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 got to pay for the habitat and life support and food and all all of this. You know, the living there. Um, so so it's more money than that. Um, but uh, you know, and then. Probably with time, the suborbital ticket prices are going to come down. Uh, and certainly if, if uh, orbital trip starts getting down as low as $200,000, then obviously the orbital tickets have to go well below that to, to attract anybody uh, because orbital is just way better than suborbital. No comparison. But, <clears throat> it's, but, like, it's, but, like, it's like hearing about sex versus. <clears throat> I hear you. Um, so, <laughs> so I think that um, – we got to I think we shouldn't look at it just from our own self-interest. I think the Apollo program engaged the public around the world in a remarkable way, even though very few people were actually able to go. And in some sense, we all went. I mean, even me, I'm too young. I missed out on the whole Apollo program. Uh, and so I didn't go even at the time. I, mean, I, di- I didn't even vicariously go, but it was in later, you know, in later years that I learned about the Paul program, thought, wow, this is, this is one of the most remarkable things that humans have ever done. Um, and so I even take value in the Apollo program. Um, I think we, we got to recognize that as humans start moving beyond earth, which is, which is going to happen relatively soon, that, we can all, I think it'll be of great interest to the public. I think they will value it. Um, I think they will absolutely love to see not only the first humans moving off, but their own countrymen going to the moon for the first time uh, and to Mars for the first time. And I think there'll be people like libertarians who will say, hey, this is our opportunity to actually establish a separate political entity, a colony or settlement or, or even country. Uh, and I think there will be a, a libertarian fund that libertarians will donate to to buy tickets for more libertarian. You know, kind of like a prototypical, the moon is a harsh mistress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because Robert was definitely radical libertarian. So, so you've got to understand that this is, this is not just tourism. Tourism will be part of it, but this is really a turning point in human history. It really is. Um, Richard, let me do this to, to set the context. Let me share with you how I think things are going to play out, the different phases of development on Earth. 
Okay, um, uh, just so you know where the program is flowing, we've got some callers who are oh. dying to ask you some questions. So okay. why don't we do a callers kind of – kind of, well, let, let, let's, let's finish your thought and limb out what you want to. Then we'll go to a question because it's one of our colleagues, and it will be a good question, I guarantee you. And okay. then we can go back to the flow of information. But keep going with where you were going. So let me just quickly summarize the, the different phases. Uh, okay, so, so there will be a cargo phase first. Uh, it'll start with the moon and shortly thereafter on Mars, uh, delivering the 100 tons. Uh, and then following that will be um, a government exploration phase called uh, on, on the moon. It'll be uh, Artemis, okay? And I'm guessing probably there will be a public-private program between NASA and SpaceX to, to send the first astronauts. Uh, and, and NASA will probably pay very, very generously to, to, for that uh, mission. Well, let me interrupt, uh, he always says. I mm-hmm. know why Bezos is mad at Musk. And I'll bet if you thought about it, you know too. What's that? Money. He was expecting a government subsidy to develop his lunar, you know, New Glenn, New Armstrong, etc. And because Musk now, you know, has monopoly... But Bezos is out in the cold. He has to use his own money. And the richest man in the world is cheaper than uh, Jack Benny. He doesn't want to use his own money. Yeah. So, so we'll get in the finance. I, I think you're actually right, uh, which, which draws some questions. How much liquidity do these guys actually it have? It just occurred okay. to me. That's the reason. Anyway, go ahead. It, it could well be. So continue with these phases. So, so there's the initial government expo- uh, public-private public, program with government astronauts doing exploration. Okay. Um, but then following that, I believe, comes a fairly substantial-sized international lunar exploration phase and international Mars exploration phase. Um, and this is going to be people around the world wanting to watch their hero national astronauts explore lava tubes on the moon or, you know, explore Ballas Marineris on Mars or Mons, you know, the Olympus Mons. Um, so there will be that phase, and what that will do is – the majority of, of international astronauts that go, and, and the governments are going to be t- paying sort of top price. It's where the, the seat prices haven't come down very far yet. They'll pay, they've got the deepest pockets. They'll do that. Uh, but what happens is they're going to leave behind most of those international astronauts to also represent their, comp- their countries in, in a growing international base. A growing. I mean, we're talking at least hundreds or, or, or even thousands. And what that does is that establishes the infrastructure necessary for private individuals, if they so choose for their own reasons, uh, to, to, to go to these spaces. And, and it will be not, it'll be expensive, but not so expensive because the technologies are being developed and these habitats are being manufactured. Well, the infrastructure, system. which is today's buzzword, infrastructure will have been developed. Exactly. So private settlements as science fiction as that sounds, will be just a natural uh, extension of a permanent government base because they, they have the same requirements. Mm. No, I, 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 I <clears throat> zero conflict with your model. I just think it, it's going to happen a lot sooner than even you're, you're thinking. I hope so. Well, I think we have some data. Look at what Musk did when he got in the game compared to what NASA, NASA could sure. have landed the stages of the Saturn V back onto Earth. They didn't. Why? Technologically, it was possible, even in the 60s, 
to land and recover and reuse a Saturn V. Why didn't they? Hmm. Because they, they didn't imagine that it would be a growth industry. It was a political stunt. It was to beat the Russians. It was not to establish exactly. a space architecture, although Kennedy's speech, if you look at his speech and listen carefully, he had the vision. But, of course, he was, he was withdrawn from the field, and much lesser lights took over. And so NASA turned into a, basically a jobs program uh, with high-end space technology as a benefit. Right. Do we have a caller we need to get to? Yes, we do. So, Ron, are you there? Let me, I, oh, I'm sorry. I have to click the button. Uh, see, <laughs> don't do this for a while. Technology. Actually, yes, technology. Okay, so let me do this. Um, there we are. I think there we are. Okay. Yes. Hello. We're on the air, Ron. Oh, hi there. Uh, yes, I... Yeah, hello. Well, hello. I can I'm hear. I, Keith? I can hear Keith? me. I can even you hear, hear the echo. What's happening? I'm not here. Hi, Ron, but uh, I don't know what your situation is. It. Uh, we should be hearing him. Yes, you should be hearing him. Yeah, you can see my board. You can see, every, you know, we're not. Why don't we redial whatever? Uh, make sure you've got the, a blog talk uh, channel open. Wait a minute. There we are. There we are. Ronnie, there? Yes. There we are. Still. Okay. okay. Uh, this has a strange microphone, so let me know if I sound like I'm in the next room or something. No, there's a lot of, uh, of noise about surface brushing. Don't touch the mic. Well, no, I won't. I just had to set it down. It's a karaoke mic. I'm supposed to hold it, so if I was, that means uh, you have to sing for us tonight at the end of the show. Mm, no, <laughs> no, one thing. Oh uh, yes. Okay, that'd so, be good. Yeah. Do you have no, a question, I, uh, or do you have a statement, or do you have both? Uh, yes. Uh, first off, uh, on uh, William Shatner, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the ha- the time that he gets in that Bezos flight is long enough to tape a. Um, an insurance commercial. I think that I think he's got other funding behind it that uh, hasn't been public. He's probably planning on on what I don't even know what insurance company it was that he was doing ads for. But um, the, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a commercial aspect. Uh, the other possibility is that he simply, although you could take anybody up in the um, Bezos thing. Uh, Musk does run everybody through a training program and, you know, physicals. They have to be fit to do it. So, yeah, he's right. spry for 90 years old, but uh, we don't know about it. I mean, he's also tremendously overweight, and um, maybe it's uh, problematical or he doesn't want to put himself through it. Mm, these are all useful speculations. We have zero data. Yeah, that's all they are. That's 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 all they are. But it, yeah, I agree with you. It'd be nice to put him on the space station. Uh, yeah, and I would. Yeah, I'm still a little unclear about how you guys resolved the discussion on building things in orbit. Because if you're going to build a really big spaceship, you need to build it in orbit. And I think Miss, I think Musk is thinking about this because the, you know, they continually post pictures from Boca, Boca Chica on the um, on their Twitter feed. 
And there was a beautiful one today of this huge robot arm that's that's part of the uh, assembly protocols for lifting up those stages and moving them around. And uh, boy, you assemble something like that in space, and you could build something. You know, that's he's definitely, I think, working on that sort of tech to do that. Well, it's it's extensions of the of the shuttle arm and the Canada arm on the space station. And uh, two of them now. Um, Doug, why don't you address this? What do you? I, I see no evidence that I, I've seen zero evidence that Elon is talking about anything being built in space. To get to the moon, you don't need infrastructure. To get to Mars, you don't need in-space infrastructure. I should say. So he, he said nothing, as far as I know. The only thing he's talking about, and I've seen the designs, is you know orbit-to-orbit refueling, which NASA was talking about for decades, and we still don't have it. You know, well, I'm not sure what orbit to orbit means. I mean, he would refuel his it, empty it, upper stage. It, it means you exactly. You launch two spacecraft. One's empty, one's full, and you right. transfer fuel from the full one to the empty one, and the empty one okay. goes further. In orbit refueling, not orbit to orbit, but in orbit refueling. Well, technically, each spacecraft has its own orbit. So, well, okay. <laughs> now, now. You got me. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, they're all uh, just falling down. They're just missing the target. That's my yes, favorite right. analogy for being in orbit. So your, or uh, your first idea, what's the next one? Okay. Well, no, there's an extension of that, which is it's more than just fuel. I mean, you're not, you're, uh, the, the vision is stopping short of the target. Uh, it's the same operation. But if you're going to mount a big mission, because Musk has talked about sending uh, advanced flights, you know, with supplies. And so he's very big on automation so that the, they could send unmanned craft with supplies ahead of time, kind of like in the, uh, Mar- in the movie The Martian. Uh, it was a Bob Zubrin model. Yeah, it's a good, well, it's, it's a good one. But you could also transfer stuff in orbit the same way you transfer fuel. So you can, you can build the thing to take people up there. And remember, you can hang a trailer on something once it's out of the Earth's gravity well. You know, they could they could add supplies after they're already up there. Well, you're thinking of a cluster of Bigelow inflatable modules, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd, I'd rather they be a little stir, a little more hard shell than that. But I um, hang on, hang on, hang on, Doctor. I again, I, I this is speculation. I see no evidence that uh, Elon or SpaceX has has talked about a, a assembling you know, attaching payloads together in low Earth orbit before sending them off to Mars. What what I'm seeing is multiple independent starships departing at the same time. That's that's what we're seeing. Like the original Von Braun expedition, which had several ships in a fleet all leaving Earth orbit together. Only these would be a thousand of them. Mm. Uh, now, they, they could probably, yeah. on the way, on trans-Mars injection, they could probably dock if you need to trans, you know, one one breaks down, you transfer the people into the other. Well, but you, know, you, you just raise an interesting point. Huh. I know Musk has talked about his thousand starships, but he's certainly not proposing launching a thousand simultaneous missions. No way. So th- this is a great question, and, and I have not seen enough discussion about that. This is something like TBD, you know, to be determined in the future. But before the the... You'd the, want precursors. You want to test it out. You want to see. Remember, he has said on the record, some of these people are going to die. So you want I'm, to make I'm that sorry, risk. 
as small as possible. You don't send a thousand ships of a hundred people each. You send maybe no. two or three. You set up a base. You start to work out your protocols. You add more people. Yeah. You expand it. You don't send them all at once. No way. Yeah, yeah. So that that's absolutely correct. Um, it's it's not that he's going to have a thousand starships <laughs> at the very first. That launch. was what your your earlier statement gave me this incredible vision. Ah. So. Well, I, I'm I'm ta- okay. So when when you know the the Earth Mars window opens every 26 months. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, 2.135 years. So what happens is the very first one, it's going to be one, two, or maybe See, three. See, um, let me stop you there. That's actually technically only necessary if you use the cheapest home and transfer orbits. If you have orbital refueling, if you have refueling on Mars, you basically trade fuel for time. So uh, NASA missions now don't – you don't have to wait exactly 26 months. The window is like several months long. So you can cheat. You can go straighter, uh, launch sooner, come back. In other words, that 26 months does not inviolate. It's all dependent on your fuel capability and your technology and your engines. Well, let me me explain. The 26 months is inviolate because that's when the Earth and Mars, you know, align itself, a conjunction. Um, So that doesn't change. But what but your point is valid uh, to some extent, and that is. The, the length window. of your window is is changeable. I'm yeah, saying. the width of, the width of your window can be expanded by by greater use of propellant. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and so that is true, but it it gets to the point to where the window it, it, the penalty the propellant penalty becomes greater and greater at the at the edges of those windows until it becomes impractical, because your delta v if you get outside of the window your delta v, v can go very high. Uh, to where you need I would think delta. that the the limit would more likely be the re-entry speed both at Mars and Earth but there you've got arrow breaking and his whole concept I mean the starship does this weird belly flop which is staggeringly scary like just yeah. above the pad and then it sets down vertically they did that with what 15 the other day amazing video but there's a limit to the heat shield on your starship because outside the window, the entry velocities get too high at both ends of, of, the, uh, of the planetary spectrum, Earth and Mars, so you literally burn up. So that's yeah, your that, ultimate limit. That, that is a limit, but there's also simply the ability to hit your target, to hit Mars as it's going by. That, there's also a limit there. Give me navigation? Do we answer Ron's? No, the, the delta V, the oh, okay. The yeah. One other point you, you seem to be, you guys both seem to be missing. There's a benefit to having a bunch of ships up there in orbit. They don't have to launch them all at once, but they're, the maintenance level of an unoccupied craft that's parked in orbit waiting for the fleet to leave uh, is fairly uh, fairly minor. So they could take their time and get uh, as many ships as they wanted up there. Because if you wanted to land a thousand ships on Mars all at the same time, you could do it. Well, if you you know if you had them if you had them going, so you just you just stock them, you man them, you send the people up last. Yeah, come on, the traffic control problem is nuts. Who would want to do that? There's there's no way they would do that. However, I do agree that you'd put some in orbit as spares because it's a lot cheaper ultimately. If something breaks to go to ship X79B in this particular orbit and ferry the stuff back to the ship you want to go to Mars in, 
as opposed to having to lift it from the ground. Exactly, and then the one that's left that's left in orbit can be fixed for next time. Can be refixed exactly. Yeah, yeah. Outside yeah. of the Earth, outside of the Earth Mars launch window, you can you can launch dry goods. Okay, you can supplies. You can you can launch those and have them hanging out there. Well, you can uh, also do what it's called the slow boat, meaning you send them on these extraordinary orbits. Like back in the day, they were talking about going to Mars by way of Venus, that kind of thing. And we've yeah. gone to Jupiter by way of Venus and Mercury swingbys and all that. So if you're dealing with just dry mass, just freight, it, you know, it's like it's like uh, you know FedEx and UPS. You've got air and you've got ground. If you send it ground, it doesn't matter if it takes three years to get there. You establish a pipeline, but it could be much much cheaper to do it that way for some things. However, I would say, and this this opens up a whole new conversation, that is, I would say most of your building materials ought to be developed fairly early on on Mars. I mean, that should be the goal Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to launch it and ship it, because what you want to do is you want to get um, the the mass that you're that you are are sending to Mars. As soon as possible, you want to get that down to being people, their provisions and electronics. And the, the metals, the, the, the water, the consumables, those things you want to produce on Mars as soon as possible. Rather so, so, so the basic building materials, the walls, the ceilings, the structure and all that, that would be done from Mars. The yeah. high-end electronics, the robots, the high-value, incredibly important stuff that has to work the first time or you're all going to die, you bring that from Earth. Yes. And you exactly. make the two together on Mars. That's exactly right. It's, it's cheaper just to ship the, the, the chips than try to figure out how to make them on Mars. Just way cheaper. A, a one cubic meter box of AMD. Well, you, remember, you, you have to have the thousands. tools to make the tools to make the tools to make the tools to make the thing. And it's already on Earth. Why would you duplicate it on Mars? It would be so dumb to do that in the right. initial stages. Ultimately, you will develop self-sufficient factories and production lines and supply chains and all that on Mars, on the moon, whatever, but not initially, and it's not necessary, and it's not even economically uh, required. Mm -hmm. God, I think we're all in agreement. That's amazing. Hey, we are at the bottom of the hour, and you know I have to do this tonight at least once. My guests this morning are uh, Dr. Doug Plata and Ron Gerbron, from our imaging team members, and this is Elton John.
find a place to raise your kids. In fact, it's cold as hell. And there's no one there to raise them. If you do. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. Other side of midnight.com. And all the science I don't understand. Just my job, I'm And we're talking this morning about two rocket men, two competitors, two billionaires who, in my humble opinion, are going to form the foundation of ultimately the means by which we save the human race. Nothing less, nothing more. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. And the only thing I have find fault with in Sir Elton John is I don't think it's going to be a long, long time. I think it's going to sweep over us at warp nine. Gentlemen, what do you think? Uh, well, there is Elon time. <laughs> so 
uh, it, it always can be faster, um, but but frankly, I'm very pleased with the the pace. I'm I'm just amazed, frankly, at the pace at which things are happening there in Boca Chica. Well, they seem to be modulated more by um, uh, you know legal problems, Bezos lawsuits, the FAA, et cetera, et cetera, than by Musk technology. Stainless steel. The, te- the technology does take some time. Um, you know. There's the issue of is is this launch going to be successful? I mean, there there have been many explosions, both in the development of the Falcon 9 as as well as uh, the Starship, and I'm sure there's going to be more explosions, more setbacks. Um, it, it all depends if he really gets lucky, if if on this first um, orbital attempt, if he's able to retrieve the first stage, which would just be an absolute phenomenon just by itself. A Saturn V first stage. I mean, Saturn V size rocket returning back and landing is just going to be an absolute phenomenon. <laughs> by the way, it, by the way, uh, were you the, were you, were you the one that was talking about the uh, mechanical things they're adding to the launch site of Boca Chica? Um, of that Colum- was Ron. That was Ron. Okay. Ron, those are not designed to move things around. Those are designed to catch and stabilize the landing of the first stage super heavy booster back on the launch pad. And move things around, and, and to place upper stage on 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 the bottom stage. Well, the most well, I almost the keeping it from tipping over. Remember, they had that problem uh, on some of the landings on the, you know, of course I still love you or whatever those drone yeah. ships were called, and they uh, yeah. and they realized, hey, it might be nice. Like remember, Roddenberry never puts seatbelts <clears throat> in the Starship. <laughs> and so when, I gotta just go ahead. I got to disagree. I think catching it out of the air, catching a, rock, a rocket that's coming down, that is the most sexy part of, of it all. That's, that'll be unbelievable. <laughs> well, I, it, no, wait uh, a minute. Are we having a, a disagreement in terms here? Because I know he's tried to catch the fairings, basically the nose cones and the big net. No, the, the, the arms on the launch tower, their, their primary function is to catch the first stage as it's coming back and landing at the launch site. That's what those arms are for. And then it, it catches it so that you don't, so that the first stage doesn't have to have landing legs on it. Okay. It doesn't even need to oh, have that. Oh, see, I haven't delved deep into the details. So the, so the, uh, the claws are in place of landing legs, which would take up space and weight. And yes, and not just the first stage, but the second stage as well. The one that reenters mm-hmm. uh, from orbital velocities, when it comes down, it would be caught as well and then placed on top of the first stage, and then refilled and launched again. Hmm, i got to pay closer attention to these details. Hmm. Unbelievable. If they can pull that off, man, my hat. Well, unlike the damn fairing, you know, you've got a rocket coming down with, you know, inch precision guidance. So there's probably no real big deal if the system mechanically functions. You know, hydraulics sometimes do not work. But there'll be redundancy and all that. Hey, Ron, got any thoughts? Yeah, the picture that I was talking about that was up no, on the Twitter feed today, I almost sent it to you guys. Can you hear me? Uh, was, uh, it's, a, it's a gigantic articulated arm, and it's uh, right next to uh, the Starship. So I don't know how it's going to catch things. It looked like something to do with the assembly. But the point is he's working on that kind of machinery. Well, no, Doug is our resident expert tonight, and he says that that is in lieu of the landing legs that deploy on the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy boosters. Just before landing, they pop out and slide down 
and you get this tripod arrangement, that's missing on the super heavy. So without that that catching system on the pad, it literally functions as the stabilization for the final stage of, of landing back at the launch site. Amazing. That works for me. I was. It looks like a piece of that gigantic caterpillar suit that uh, Sigourney Weaver wears in one of the in the Alien movie. <laughs> you know what I'm just saying. Of, uh, who else you know is working on that kind of technology? That's all. Nobody. Nobody. You know. Yeah. Anyway, Musk thinks big. You, he's got to be the most interesting visionary. He is D.D. Harriman, if he is anybody. Um, remember those little arcade things where you have all the plush toys and you put in a quarter and then you move this little grabber thingy and then you try to get the toy? That gadget reminds me of that, except on a super constructional scale. You know, it's like... Um, Back when John Kennedy was 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 uh, touring uh, the fledgling Cape uh, Canaveral, and with Jim Webb, who was the head of NASA, and uh, they're in this open, you know, uh, Cadillac, and they're driving around, and uh, Webb points over across the, the the bay or something, and he says, "And that, Mr. President, is our vertical assembly building." And Kennedy, who had this wondrous sense of humor, he just looks at him wryly and he says, "Jim." How do you assemble a vertical? And after that, it became the vehicle assembly building. Good point. <laughs> Doug, did we lose you? Oh, there you are. He's dazzled by your brilliance, Richard. An animation showing how the launching tower catches the returning. Oh, stages. excellent, excellent. Maybe we could incorporate that in the, uh, yeah, just, in the note. Just, just, just send it to Cynthia. She'll post it. So, um, all right, what are we missing? We don't have a lot of time left here. I'm kind of looking at my uh, uh, clock, and it says we got less than 20 minutes. So what, Doug, have we not covered? And, Ron, hang around. You might have an interesting thought or two is on, along the way here. Well, I mean, maybe we can mention about this Artemis program, because uh, I think that's, that is probably going to happen. Um, and that's going to be part of the story going forward. Uh, so the Artemis program was a, a uh, is a NASA program uh, started uh, during the Trump administration. Uh, the NASA administrator at that time, uh, Bridenstine, Jim Bridenstine, uh, came up with this idea of the Artemis program. Now there's the Apollo program, uh, but in Greek mythology, the twin uh, sister of Apollo was Artemis, and Artemis is the goddess of the moon, and so it's just like totally appropriate. The first woman to walk on the moon. Mm, it's be, almost like somebody planned this from the beginning. I, I know. It's, it sure looks that way, doesn't it? Well, come on. Um, Remember what NASA's so, acronym stands for? Um, you never, never heard that one? There's a bad joke. N-A-S-A. Never a straight answer. Jim Bridenstine <laughs> did not come up with Artemis. Oh, okay. he, he, he was he was a damn good administrator. I actually yeah. was looking for uh, Biden to keep him on. But for political reasons, he quit. He was a former congressman out of mm -hmm. Oklahoma, but he did really interesting things. He was probably yeah. one of the more efficient administrators going all the way back to Webb because he launched literally the return to the moon a la Artemis. Problem is the vehicle. What they ought to do, what NASA should do, is simply rent starships. Well, they are sort of doing that. Okay, so 
so what they what they what NASA decided under the Artemis program is, hey, we are getting close to completing the the government super heavy lift vehicle, the SLS, Space Launch System. And on top of that would be the Orion capsule that uh, NASA astronauts could get in and go to not to the moon, but to a, a lunar orbit uh, near rectilineal halo, halo orbit where NASA wants to build up a small gateway. It's sort of a mini space station. Yeah, now. it's a mini space station. And the neat part is with using it, you can get to any place on the moon, any that point, as opposed to Apollo, which was restricted uh, to equatorial uh, landing sites because of the free return trajectory mandates and the lunar orbit and celestial mechanics. No, Gateway makes the whole moon accessible to anybody, not just NASA astronauts. Yeah, I think Starship's going to make the whole moon uh, available. That's accessible. a separate path, yeah. By the way, he does not need, Musk does not need to refuel Starship on the moon with methane. Hi there, little guy. I have a, a, a visitor in the, in the studio tonight listening to the show. Very happy, very, very attentive. Now he's walking on my feet. And well, the audience knows who I'm talking about. No, he's very quiet. Look at that. That's amazing. Anyway, sorry, guys. Um, no, Musk is going to refuel in Earth orbit, which allows him to go to the moon, land on the moon, take off from the moon, and come back to Earth without refueling on the moon with methane. I believe that is correct, but uh, what, what's happened is NASA, in its old thinking, <laughs> it's, you know, they, they, I don't want to say that pejoratively. It's it's they. Oh come on, we bash been... NASA regularly here. Yeah, wait till you get to know us better. <laughs> yeah, I understand. But and, and there's there's reason to bash NASA, but but we shouldn't bash like it's just our philosophy to bash everything government or everything. No, else. I mean, no, we're we're not knee jerking that way. Yeah, yeah, but some people. Are, SLS you know. is obsolete. It's bloated. It's costing us an arm and a leg. It's not Absolutely. necessary. It's just stuck in the political process. Because NASA turned into, after Apollo, a jobs program for congressmen wanting to be reelected. Not a way to run a space well, program. Yes, yes, and no. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, before Starship came along, there was no replacement for SLS. We've got to remember that. Right. Congress, congressmen, I mean, like when the Obama administration wanted to cancel, you know, the, the whole return, you know, the, it's almost the whole human spaceflight program. Congress came along and says, no, we're not going to let you do that, okay? And they forced upon uh, NASA and, and upon uh, the Obama administration, forced upon them the SLS, okay? So, you know, the Yeah, the which Obama was built around, I'm sorry, one, con- one senator in Alabama determined sure, sure. that, but, but got, Richard but, Shelby. But it wasn't just one senator voting. It was multiple senator vote, senators voting. And what they decided is we don't want to lose our human spaceflight program. Because if we give up this capability, what else is there? Are we going to get to the moon on, on Falcon 9? And right, Dragon right. No, it's not capable. Okay? So they wanted to keep this capability, and the BFR or Starship was just a, uh, you know, a back-of-the-mind thought in, by Elon Musk. There, he wasn't building it. Okay? And even up to this point, SLS is still the most advanced super heavy lift vehicle rocket, okay? But that is changing, and it's changing now, not two years ago, not four years, not six or eight years ago, only now. And frankly, if it wasn't for SpaceX, I, I would say, you know, Blue Origin is not 
providing an alternative to SLS. Not okay. yet. Not yet. No. So, so Starship is absolutely key. And yes, I think Starship is making SLS irrelevant in the near future. And I just hope that we, that, that we recognize that times have changed and now we have the capability emerging. When you uh, say in, we, you mean NASA. Really, I'm saying the country. I think this is a, a program. The country is the country's already – they don't care about NASA. They care about Musk. Musk is exciting. Musk is the future. Musk is real space. Musk spaceships look like spaceships. They are, yeah. they're, they're not even aware that NASA has a vehicle that might go to the moon someday again. But, but what matters is capability. What matters is reality. Okay, and, and SpaceX is changing the super heavy lift vehicle reality by building a superior super heavy lift vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just hope we, we transition over to this new horse as soon as possible. So well, we that's stop. going to be a political decision. And that means you're looking for intelligence in Washington and particularly at NASA. They, they did it. They made an intelligent decision before when, when it came to the shuttle. Okay. You mean, you mean deep six? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I mean, uh, uh, SOS is a continuation of the shuttle, but the whole, the people servicing the orbiter and. Well, and part of the legislation that mandated a la, you know, the Senator from Alabama that they reuse for the SLS, the big, you know, Saturn V clone as much of the shuttle technology as possible. And that, of course, is stupid because the shuttle technology is 60, you know, 1960s technology. Musk is 21st century technology. It's like, again, people say government doesn't function because it's too big and bureaucratic and bloated. This is a, this is a point of reference for the most interesting agency in government, which is NASA. They cannot turn on a dime. They cannot be flexible because there's too many people, i.e. Congress, hanging on every grant and every contract to basically stay in, or- stay in orbit, stay in, stay in office. <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, so the Artemis program is, um, uh, is an ongoing program. What's quite interesting is that the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, the space policy is about the only policy that continues the same. Uh, between the administrations. Ah, and what, and, does, and, 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 and what does that tell you? It tells me that we are getting close to achieving significant goals, and a new administration doesn't want to jump off the horse when the horse is about to win the race. It, it, it matters how close you get to the finish line as to whether the next administration wants to take it all the way and gain the glory from, from doing that. So, so it, it is moon first. So we, we are returning to the moon. I, I don't see that ever, you know, I don't see that changing between administrations. But if NASA is not careful, it's going to become irrelevant because Starship is, is so superior, so superior to what. Do the you know how the two programs are integrated? Because obviously, when you think yes. of NASA subcontracting to, to Musk to build the lunar lander, the way we did it in Apollo is that you carried the lander with the uh, whole rest of the spacecraft. You separated it. It landed, came back, and all. That's not what's going to happen. What Musk is going to do is launch his own starship to the moon separately from Boca Chica, I imagine, um, in terms of lunar missions. So why do you need SLS at all? 
So, so you have to understand this is where the momentum of government and the, um, the self-authority of government, the government believes that, and, and it has been for decades, it has, it's, the dri- it's in the driver's seat when it comes to our nation's space. Oh, it's the, it's the you're Chevy, I'm, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not model. Yeah, so, so, so <laughs> what it is is they say, okay, we are getting close to finishing up this SLS in the Ryan. <laughs> and we have an idea about how we can develop this this gateway, uh, which is will, will be in lunar orbit. The thing they're lacking to, to access the surface of the moon is a lunar lander. So they said, we, this wonderful government, this great government, we are we have this program. All we need is the is the lander. And so they put out a bid and say, okay, what companies can give us a lander that will go from the gateway station in lunar orbit down to the moon and back up, and then we'll launch refuel. We'll, we'll have commercial refueling sent. To the gateway to refuel these landers that can be reused again and again and again to do exploration all around the moon that's their mindset their mindset is exploration their mindset isn't development it's not settlement it's it's repeat apollo again get get more rocks mm-hmm. to the apollo temple. okay it's like the dinosaurs and little mice <clears throat> hi guy they're going to be totally outdone by the practicalities of musk and his vision and his technology well they can't so win happened, what happened, NASA says, okay, companies, tell us what can you do for small landers will take a few people down to the surface and, and be reusable eventually, okay? Mm-hmm. So what happens is you have three companies that put forth their, their proposals, okay? Dynetics have, from West Virginia, Bezos, uh-huh. Blue Origin, and Musk, SpaceX. And, okay, so, so it's Dynetics, small vehicle, uh, Blue Origin, small vehicle, okay, the national team, small vehicle, okay? And then SpaceX says, Oh, we'll have our starship, this huge upper stage, we'll go ahead and land, okay? And we'll do it for far less than the others, and, and we, can, we can be able to, uh, when, when you actually do establish a permanent base, we can send 100 tons at a time, okay? So what happens, NASA is not getting the proper funding uh, from Congress. No. Congress is like money for government program, very little money for commercial, okay? So NASA looks at a small budget, and they say, you know, we can't afford two companies they have two different landers we can only afford one what is the cheapest one ironically the cheapest one is the biggest vehicle which is spacex mm-hmm. and so spacex gets that gets that contract and bezos fights it and you know we have this whole thing okay but now but now what's happening is why in the if starship can go to the moon without having to go through the gateway you know why why is Elon trying to, you know, send four people on a starship when a starship can send far more than that? Okay, here's my theory, and it's just a theory, and that is, when we think about these top billionaires, we we think about their net worth, but their net worth is stock, and their stock is what gives them, you know, 51% or more gives them control over the companies. Right. If they start liquidating their stock, people say, why is the person who's at the top of the company getting out, okay? And, and so they could tank the value of their stock by selling stock, okay? So even though they, they are on paper have a lot of money, in terms of cash, they don't have a lot of cash just sitting around, okay? So in fact, they do want and maybe need these government, these you know, low billion dollar contracts with the government to be able to have the money to do what they're wanting to do while still maintaining their position with, with their stock. I, I think I totally agree. Okay, let me ask you a dumb question. Maybe it's not dumb. 
Is Musk going to use the Starship as part of Artemis, or is he building a separate lander specifically for Artemis? Great question. And the answer is it will be the upper stage, that's the Starship, but it will be modified significantly to to serve the moon and to serve this Artemis program. And how will it get there? Uh, It will be launched on the Super Heavy, which is the first stage, okay? So so physically, technically, we're running out of time here. It's amazing. Three hours has gone by, like three minutes. And you obviously are coming back, right? Right? Yes. Good. Good. Okay. This is fun. Um, So you've got a completely independent system, Starship, and then you've got Artemis government. And the government says, here's $3 billion to develop a lander. And Musk says, okay, I'll take my entire spacecraft booster and all and do it for you. Why is there any technical connection to Artemis at all? Because I think SpaceX needs that two was it two point. No, no, I'm I'm talking technical connection, not not financial, not political, whatever. In other words, NASA's perfectly willing if 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 they're if they're paying Musk to send Starship on the super heavy, why do we even need SLS even now? Uh, because Starship has not proven itself with an orbital flight. I think when it proves itself, it's ah, a so world. you're looking at a milestone and a decision point yeah. coming up this year or and, early and, next. And they they already decided the, the the whole Artemis program is already decided before we had the great progress in development down in Boca Chica with Starship. So so they were committed to this pathway, and they still think that they're in the driver's seat. Mm. And so. Hey, um, Richard, let me let me suggest something here. We have you know two or three minutes remaining. That's it. Maybe I maybe I could just mention some things that we might discuss in the future, just to whet the. Absolutely, of, go for it. Go for it. Okay. So my particular interest is actually what comes next, and that is after we get to the moon and to Mars, what what you know what happens. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of aspects of that, and it's all laid out in in the website developspace.info. Um, but we, we have uh, telerobots, the harvesting of the ice, the, the power systems, habitats. There, I have an insta-based concept, an, in, an instantly inflatable habitat. Well, but Indoor- say that again more slowly, insta-based, like instant insta-based. coffee? Uh, well, it's an infla- inflatable base. The whole huh. base gets inflated instantly. I mean, literally in, in an hour or something wow. like that. Yeah. Uh, so it's Bigelow on steroids on a planet. Yes, planetary surface. There's there's the health issues. There's the radiation. There's the need for centrifuge for artificial gravity. There's the expansion of the base beyond the initial habitat where there's specialty habs to to, to, to grow out. There's growing food uh, in in culinary arts with that. There's a network of roads on the moon, um, which is itself interesting and it fits into tourism. There's a difference between internal and external. Wait, wait, wait. Roads on the moon, or how about like Arthur C. Clarke in a fall of moon dust, monorails on the moon? A lot of mass. A lot of, and I, think, I think we can just have self-driving vehicles under uncompacted dirt roads. Uh, for, for, you know, I think monorails will occur eventually, but not, not initially. Okay. There's the very historic initial uh, crew, which, which I think would be very interesting. There's animals in, involved. There's um, how can we, from a medical standpoint, how can we get them to stay on the moon and Mars for as long as possible? Um, and there's health issues uh, involved with that. There's dust mitigation. 
Dawson, uh, virtual reality TV show, and et cetera. I'm going to leave it there because I know we're running out of time. And there's the first baby to be born on the moon. Yes. Boy. Very historic. Yeah. And we already know that uh, Musk and and his wife are probably in line for that, given their first child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, don't don't you see Elon doing that? Oh yeah. Hmm. Oh, what's what's her name? Gringe, Grange. Uh, I'm, you know. Anyway, Prime. Oh, Richard. Hey, Richard? we are out of time. Mm-hmm. Douglas, oh. everything I hoped and more. We you must come back, and uh, that's a good outline. Hope you folks were taking notes. It'll be a test in the morning. Tomorrow, mm-hmm. we're going to kind of continue this conversation with Ron and some members of our imaging team. We're going to talk about the current developments on Mars. And, of course, Douglas does not know about our research. So in a future program, we may gently let him in on even more intriguing things. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and watch La Palma. Ah. Uh.